Texas for America, and we'd love to have your support at loveforhouston.com. We'll be back on the other side, and you'll meet two of the staples here on the Bruce Pritchard Show. Welcome to something to wrestle with. Welcome to wrestle with. Bruce Pritchard. Bruce Pritchard. Well, you know. That's not a rib. She booted. She booted. No, you got me. There's no box of gimmicks. Rumor and innuendo. I don't deal in rumor and innuendo. And, and, and was he there? I was there. I don't give a shit. <laughs> I ain't scared. Scared to shock him. Thank you, Bruce. Ah, Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to Something to Wrestle With. Out, Bruce Pritchard. It's a best of show this week. Bruce has been affected by Hurricane Harvey. He and his family are working to put together their small town of Friendswood, Texas, a suburb of Houston, and we are making this a best of. Brought to you ad-free and breaking all the rules of the Pritchard Show. First of all, the number one rule, no guests needed. Well, we're breaking that right out of the gate. We're going to have guests all day. And it's all about raising money for the hurricane relief effort. All you've got to do right now is go to loveforhouston.com. Give all you can. No donation is too small. Every little bit helps. And remember, 100% of that is tax deductible and goes directly to the Red Cross. And I would encourage you, if you haven't already, check out the brand new shirt over at brucepritchard.com. It's shaped like the state of Texas. There's a little heart where Houston goes, and it's available in multiple colors and again, 100% of the proceeds go directly to the relief effort. And we're going to get you caught up to speed on all things something to wrestle today. We've got a few celebrity friends who are going to stop by, and we're going to play some of the very best moments on the show. But I want to quickly recognize two of the guys who make the show possible. If you've ever laughed or had a chuckle at some of the over-the-top silly graphics, it's probably because of our main man here, Mr. Dave Silva. And if you've enjoyed any of the musical selections, Matt Coon probably put those together Dave, Matt, how are you guys doing today? Doing real good, buddy. Doing real good. I'm doing fantastic, Conrad. Thanks for having us on. Well, it's a big deal that we're kind of breaking the wall here and saying you guys are going to be guests. You're going to be helping me navigate through all these clips, and let's just start at the beginning. Let's get right into it. Our first episode was all about the American Dream Dusty Rhodes, and when he went north, it was a big deal for Dusty to go up north and wear those polka dots, and uh, it's one of our most recognizable clips Ah, uh, see that little play on words I did there? Coon, what's your favorite clip from the Dusty Rhodes episode? Well, first of all, anytime I think of Dusty and Bruce, I think of that impression. I love that impression. But the thing I remember the most is Bruce 
not selling that the polka dots were a rib. Everyone knows it was a rib, but Bruce still isn't letting it go. Well, I really enjoyed when he would deny that Akeem the African Dream wasn't a rib. <laughs> I could get behind polka dots not being a rib. I really could if I made myself and I tried real hard. But Akeem the African Dream, that's certainly a rib. But it's not a rib that this is his best impression and one of his very best Dusty Road stories. Check out the second most recognizable athlete. We'll be back. Well, when Dusty first came in and nobody wanted to ride with him, we did a tour through the Northeast, and Dream and I rode together in my little tiny Honda Prelude. And for those of you who don't know what a Honda Prelude is, it's basically a little two-seater sports car made by Honda. Small. And Dusty and I uh, picked him up, and we we made the Northeast run and so on and so forth. And along this run... I was, it was Dusty's first house show run with the WWF at the time. And I'm telling dreams, things like, you know, Dusty, uh, being on our TV, you're going to have more notoriety than you ever, ever dreamed of pun intended. Right. And he would look at me and just be like incredulous, punging in. I am the second most recognizable athlete in the <laughs> world. Second only to Muhammad Ali. And I just kind of look at him like going, well, you know what? I, I'm willing to bet worldwide Hulk Hogan's maybe a little more recognizable than you. And there's probably a few others. And, so I knew I, I from the very first response that he was the second most recognizable athlete in the entire world, second only to Muhammad Ali. I knew that bothered him a little bit. Right. That I would question his notoriety. Sure. So I kind of needled him on the on the whole trip and, and everything. I said, you know, you got to understand, Dream. You're going out here tonight. They're not going to know who you are. But once you get on our TV and you get that exposure – you know, the audiences are going to get to know you and you'll you'll start getting responses again. But but don't expect it at first because they don't know who you are, really. Pungin in, I'm the second most recognizable athlete in the entire world, second only to Muhammad Ali. Now, if you can imagine four days <laughs> in a Honda Prelude of listening to the second most recognizable athlete in the entire world today, second only to Muhammad Ali. I'm like, okay, man, I get it. You know, you're, you're second most recognizable athlete, so on and so forth. So we end up the tour in Hershey, Pennsylvania, and we're coming back, and he's staying in Manhattan, and I lived in Connecticut. So I got to drop him off, and then I'm heading home. So it had been a long four days <laughs> with Virgil and Pumpkinhead in this tiny little prelude. And on the way back, I like to drive fast, and I was a little heavy on the little gas there at the time, going through New Jersey on the Jersey uh, Turnpike or whatever it was. And all of a sudden, I see these nice red, white, and blue lights shining behind me. Womp, womp, womp. Yes, and some of the uh, fine state troopers from the great state of New Jersey were requesting that I pull my car over. And as I'm doing this, I share with Dusty that there might have been 
a substance in the trunk of my car that wasn't altogether universally legal at the time. In today's day and age, uh, the substance I had is legal in several states and prescribed by doctors. But at that time, it was kind of frowned upon. So it was heroin. Never been heroin. So anyway, <laughs> but I did inhale. So is we, you know, so I'm like going, okay, be cool, man. I, you know, because in Texas, if you go over, like I think it's 96 or whatever the speed limit is, man, Very they close. just take you straight into jail. Right. And I know I was going over 100. So we pull over. Now roll the windows down, and, and this can go one of two ways. Because you're either going to get nice cop or you're going to get asshole cop. Well, the police approach my car, one on each side. We I roll both windows down, and the guy comes over, asks for license and registration. I give it all to him, and he asks me a question. He says, do you have any idea how fast you were going? Before anything can come out of my mouth, Dream pops up with, Officer, last time I looked over there, he was doing at least 88 miles an hour. I told him to slow down. Wow. Uh, Thanks a lot, buddy. And the cop shines the light in both of our faces and asks that dreaded question. Oh, no, actually, I take it back. He didn't ask the question yet. So he takes, takes my little thing. He walks back to his car. And they sit back there, what seems like forever. The police in the car, they're running my license, doing all this stuff. And I just, I'm praying that they're going to give me a ticket and be on my merry way. Don't and, open and the trunk. Don't, don't ask me to get out. Don't open the trunk. <laughs> Nothing. Because Dream was, you know, I had a few beers on the, on the other side of the uh, car as well. So cop comes back, both sides, windows down. Shines a light in the car again. He says, um, are you guys wrestlers? So here's where the decision comes. Right. Do you say yes, and hopefully the guy's a fan and going to give you a break? Or do you, you know, or do you say yes, and he's not a fan, and he hates wrestlers, and he just messes with you? Or you say no, and you just go on your merry way? Now, I'm completely out of makeup. I've got really long hair. My hair's dry, and it's all down, and I don't look anything like that guy on TV, Brother Love. And I answered the question, yes, sir, we are, hoping that the guy sitting next to me might help me get out of this. Because? He is the second most recognizable athlete in the world, second only to (laughs) Muhammad Ali. And the cop looks at us, and he's shining the light right in our faces. He says, man, can I ask you a question? He goes, are you brother love? And again, do I answer this? <laughs> yes, do I answer Because, again, I'm an asshole. People hate me. And I, I go, well, yes, sir. I mean, I knew it. I knew it. Oh, my God, my captain is the biggest fan. Could I get an autograph? Of course you can. So now I know I got a fan. I, I to, to Dusty, and the guy shines the light over on Dusty and looks at him and goes, are you a wrestler too? And he incredulously looks over that cop and goes, I am the American dream, Dusty Rhodes. And the cop on Dusty's side of the window pokes his head in and goes, oh, are you still in that AWA? Wow. They let me go with not even a warning. They tell me there's no more cops between here and New York and send me on my way, and there's silence in the car. 
And as we're driving along and probably about, I don't know, two, three miles, he doesn't say a word. I don't say a word. And finally, I just look over at him. And I say, second most recognizable athlete in the world, second only to Brother Love. All right, let's keep it going. We're going to go to episode two here. When the Mega Powers Explode was episode two, and I'm sure we'll revisit this another time in long form. You see, back in the early days, we were trying to keep the show to around an hour. Well, we've certainly outgrown that. So we'll probably visit it again, but I wasn't sure when we'd talk about it again, and I wanted to make sure we addressed the rumor and innuendo that existed about Stephanie McMahon and the Macho Man. And we're going to get to that, but first, before we do, Silva, hypothetically... If the Macho Man had a little Latin blood in him, what might that sound like? Oh, yeah, Vato. Mamacita. Dig it. We might actually let Dan Soder and Bruce Pritchard do the Macho Man's from now on. But in the meantime, enjoy the rumor and innuendo. What was the mood when Randy left? I don't know if there was necessarily a mood. It kind of came out of the blue. And it was simply, we met at the studio, not at the studio, we met at the Towers in Stanford. We were going to drive to television, which was like Bushkill, New York, or somewhere in the Poconos. And it was going to be uh, myself, Vince, Pat Patterson, and Shane McMahon, and Randy Savage. And we were all going to ride and we were waiting and wait and waiting and waiting and no Vince and all of a sudden Vince pulls up doesn't even say hello goes upstairs into the office we're still sitting downstairs in the car gets back in the car and before we even made it out of the garage Vince told us well guys Randy Savage is now the proud property of WCW. We're like, what happened? He's gone. Gonna be on WCW Saturday night. Called me last night. Had to get drunk to call me. And... That was it. I mean, that was that was the extent of it. So there was talk the previous week. I just read this this week. Uh, I read it on Squared Circle on Reddit, and uh, hopefully someone hears us talking about Squared Circle on Reddit and gives us a mention there and gives the show a little love. Supposedly the week before Vince makes the announcement on Raw that Randy's gone from the Federation, uh, he makes some sort of comment, Savage does, about being in an uncomfortable seat, not wanting to be in that seat anymore. And Vince says something like, but it's a not, it's a really nice seat. Is that some sort of reference to his spot in the company and his wanting to wrestle and Vince wanting to go with the youth movement? Wow. Where do you people come up with these things? So that's a no, I guess. So let's ask, let's, let's talk about that though. Did you know that Randy wanted to wrestle? Was that expressed? And do you feel like he was, I mean, obviously he still wanted to wrestle. He wrestled many years after that is one of the reasons he left. He wanted to wrestle 
it was that decision based on just his desire for the athleticism or the spotlight or was it more money? I think it was more money and because it was the opposite that what we were hearing with Randy wanting to get out of the ring, no more bumps, be a part of the office, help us with booking, help us write TV, learn the business side. So as far of as it. you know, the, the rumors and innuendo that have been online for years and years about Randy wanting to continue wrestling in a, in a top spot and having a program with Shawn Michaels that was going to be for roughly a year. That was all bullshit. And he wanted to be in the office. Randy wanted to be a color guy. Randy wanted to be in the office. Randy wanted to help with the booking and writing the TV. And these are things Randy said to me personally. Now, Randy would make jokes when, you know, so-and-so would get hurt or something would happen. And we'd have to call Randy and say, hey, can you fill in here? So-and-so is going to be out for six weeks right, or what right. have you. Oh, yeah, you got to call the old man to come in and uh, fix everything. And But that was a joke. <clears throat> but it wasn't really what he really wanted to do. He didn't feel. Not for not from what he was saying to me at the time, no. And, I, and Randy and I would go out almost every night <clears throat> during that period he was in Stanford. Two quick questions. Um, do you have any idea what Macho Man was making before he left? ballpark probably close to half a million dollars so pretty good yeah um i mean especially considering you know you're doing comedy. he also had so. the slim jim commercial too so they were paying him good too That's, yeah i was gonna say that had to be pretty decent money listen we can't talk about him leaving without talking about the thing that everybody wants to talk about what's that stephanie mcmahon what about it well address the rumor was it ever addressed in the inner circle Behind the scenes, was there? I'm sure there was discussion. When did you first hear about it? Who told you? Where do you weigh in on it? True or not true? Well, you know, this rampant rumor everyone has talked about, it's funny. I didn't even hear this rampant rumor until probably 2006, maybe 2007. So, And I heard it from a writer on the writer's team. Who wasn't there back then? Who wasn't there back then? Who'd you hear from? A little Jewish kid. Okay, roll tide. So, um, you know, you kind of dodged. Do you believe it or no? Do I believe... What? Do, do you believe that Randy Savage had sex with Stephanie McMahon, perhaps at underage, and Vince found out about it, and that's the reason he was seemingly whitewashed from ever being discussed or involved in any WWE programming for years to come. I don't. I really don't. I, I just, I think I would have heard something about it being right there. Give if it. they did, if they did, and hit it, man, kudos to them for being able to hide it for all those years. But, I, like I said, I didn't hear that for until 10 years after Randy was gone, at least given the fact that they have, they welcomed everyone back. Scott Hall, Kevin Nash, Mick Foley after he trashed them stone cold after some rough patches, Bret Hart after he trashed them, the warrior Hogan on down the Piper. So there's a chance for me still. Probably not. Okay. Um, nah, 
what, what, especially not after this podcast. What what uh, what do you think it was that kept Randy alienated for so long? I don't know. I really and truly don't know. I don't know if it was simply Randy leaving at a time when Vince. You know, there were a couple guys Vince thought would never leave, and Randy was one of them. Sean was one of them. Hogan was one of them. Hogan was one of them. And Hogan left and came back. Yeah, but you know, I, I don't know if <laughs> if Hogan was one of those that they looked at and said, he'll never leave. It was more like a, he'll be back. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Um, Randy, I think, was viewed, he'll never leave. Episode three is all about the Lex Express and the first time we heard about one of the infamous Fuji ribs. The talk is Luger was supposed to be the next Hogan. He was supposed to replace Hogan as far as the big, you know, powerful, blonde-haired, all-American hero that the void was now there where Hogan left. Was that the plan, or was there ever any internal discussion of, he's our new Hogan? No, it wasn't he's our new Hogan, but yes, he he was, we, we threw everything behind Luger. I mean, he was going to be the next... He was going to be the next guy and, you know, dressing him up in red, white, and blue and by God, Americana and destroying the evil Japanese menace that was Yokozuna doing it on America's birthday. You know, the, the other side plot to that was it was 107 degrees on the 4th of July that year. People were dropping on the intrepid from the heat. Wow. It was it was horrendous. And the other funny, you know, kind of side story was, as I said, 107 degrees on the deck. When Yokozuna and Fuji got into the ring that day, the ring had been sitting out on the oh, deck all they, morning long. They had their feet feel. Well, Yoko kicks off his flip flops and stands there and he's like oh my god it's and he starts doing a dance because his feet are burning he goes back to go get his flip-flops and fuji kicked him off the side of the ring i love it <laughs> so yoko had to stay there the whole time barefoot and it, yeah it was incredible the jj dylan show my favorite new podcast of the year and i'm on a new podcast this year well i appreciate it and you know make sure you pass along to bruce that uh, he's in my thoughts and prayers that he remains safe there you know it'll be good when it's when the water subsides and and bruce gets out and meanwhile i strongly support the the fundraising efforts because there's that's one thing about this country uh people rally around people in need at a time like this thanks a lot man Episode four was all about the ultimate warrior. We'll probably do this one another time too. We kept it relatively short at about an hour, but we certainly hit the high points and it was the first time we were introduced to destrucity. What the hell is that? You told me a story about the warrior. Comic well, that's book, when, that's when he came back. Yeah. Okay. So warrior university and dextrucity and yeah. Tell me about the warrior comic book because i think you told me something hilarious that i don't know that we can share here on the podcast but if we can it owned me you know the the, the whole thing uh, i think jim Cornette was with us at the time we had we were flying out for wrestlemania 12 and a detour on our trip was to warrior university to meet with warrior and talk about 
plans for what we wanted to do with him and moving forwards, what have you, and his, I think it was dextrosity and... I don't even know what that is. Nobody knows what the hell that is. It was some convoluted... D is for desire. E is for extreme thinking. S or X, however you want to say. I mean, it was it was crazy. Um, but afford anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything, wherever you listen. Vince, you know, was all in to bring a warrior back and and let's do something with him. And, let, let's and this all, is 96. Whatever WrestleMania 12 was. That's right. Yeah. yeah, it's 96. And, March 96. Um, so we all go out there and we, we meet and we eat at the Longhorn Steakhouse or whatever the hell it was. And everybody's happy and Cornette's going, God damn, what the hell is this destricity shit? I didn't understand a word he said. Um, but. You know, it was part of it. He had a comic book, the Ultimate Warrior comic book or Warrior comic book. And, you know, we get to to WrestleMania in the match with Triple H. And yeah. He was back. How many copies of the Warrior comic book did y'all buy? Too many. You don't have a number? Too many. And then after we bought too many and didn't sell very many at all. Um, How many boxes of those comics do you have now? I don't have any, but there were there were a few. Hundreds and of cases? There were a lot. Thousands and of cases? I don't know. There were a lot. Hundreds of cases at least with several hundred in them. Uh, but it, it just didn't, didn't work. And, and Warrior became very, very difficult to deal with and, and started making a lot of demands and very unreasonable demands. Well, before you get into that, I want to talk about WrestleMania 12 mm-hmm. kind of ironic, you know, given the way WWE is now and the way everything's kind of shaken out that he squashes triple H very quickly and triple H at the time was coming up and you know, you guys were trying to push a little bit and he had had some pay-per-view matches, had some wins under his belt and later in that year would win the intercontinental title and, I mean, really started to pick up steam. The next year would win King of the Ring. There was talk that he was going to win King of the Ring in 96. Curtain call changed all that. So there were big plans for him, but no problem squashing him to the Warrior. Whose idea was that? No, there's a big problem squashing. See, you say no problem squashing. Well, you just just glanced over it, so I just assumed it was no problem. No, it wasn't no problem. The, the (laughs) The match was designed completely differently, and Warrior changed it. Okay, who was the agent on the match? Doesn't matter who they do in the match was. The match was designed differently. They were laid out to them. Warrior changed it and changed it right before they went out. Hunter, being a pro and knowing, well, I, it, we're WrestleMania. I got to go out. I got to go, you know, do this. Not really wanting to make waves on the biggest show of the year. Knowing what we had planned for Warrior, did it and came back. And Warrior was like, well, I changed it. But no, it was never laid out that way. It was never, ever intended to be a squash in any way shape or form well what was it supposed to be it's supposed to be a match how many minutes over. Like, i think they had like 12 minutes 
but still the same press slam splash finish. Well, the finish, yeah. But just not shoulder tackle, shoulder tackle, right. clothesline. That right. Done. Yeah. Yeah. So a minute ago, I asked who the agent was, and you said it doesn't matter. Why would you say that? Because it doesn't matter. I mean, the agent was as blind as everybody else. So Okay, so n- no, neither guy smartened anybody up. They didn't have time to, and and, and, I be- and I do believe Hunter did smarten the agent up, but it was right before, and it was like, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Yeah. We're there. Yeah. And I didn't have communication with the referee like, you know, we did now, and, and it was just something that happened and it took place. Any heat, and it was unfortunate. Any heat on Triple H at the time, or did everybody understand he was in a bad spot? Triple H was in a horrible spot, and he did what he, you know, he did what he did, and I would argue that it was the right move because you know you, it's wrestlemania it was what it was and it sucked but triple h did what he had to do and there was you know there was long many discussions and stuff with warrior after that that night and afterwards you know we don't do that here you know things have changed right and you know you can't go into business for yourself all right, guys, I'm excited to talk to you about this one. This is the episode that helped put us on the map with the newsletters. You know, it feels like at this point, fuck Dave Meltzer is not only a t-shirt, it's a mantra from Bruce Pritchard. And of course, I'm a big fan of Dave's. You know, his newsletters have really been uh, a great resource for us wrestling fans and me specifically here on the show. I'm a 20-year subscriber. But old Dave first heard about our program when Bruce Mitchell from The Torch reached out and just shit all over this podcast and made fun of Bruce and kind of mocked the details. So it's fitting that coming out of this clip, we're going to throw to Bruce Mitchell and you can decide for yourself, but remind everybody again, Matt Coon, how would Bruce Pritchard describe Bruce Mitchell? The Jack off from Greensboro. Stay tuned. We've got a clip from that episode about a misunderstanding with the undertaker. And then you'll hear from said Jack off. And Davey Boy and Owen are standing right in front of me, and Owen's like, what happened? What happened? And, <laughs> and Bulldog's like, they fucked him. They just fucked Red, And uh, they screwed him. And they're like, what do we do? I'm like, I don't know. So they turned to look at you to ask what to well, do. they were staring at me. Yeah. And I'm like, I don't know. I and guess so they assume, you know, and you're not playing dumb. You really are dumb. To this idea. I have no clue. Okay. No clue whatsoever. I got it once. It happened. Once Sean rolled out to Vince, I got it, but. And it, Sean tries to play it off. Like he's not involved. He grabs the belt and stomps know, yeah. backstage frustrated. Like yeah. he had nothing to do with it. Yeah. Um, you're about to digress and tell a personal story well the personal story is is that we used to do undertaker was not on tv at the time okay and but he was there okay and taker sat next to me at gorilla position the entire night was that normal what for taker to sit by you and gorilla when he wasn't working no i mean but he had nothing to do and he was watching the show so as far as you knew but he could have been smartened up and said hey baby hang on okay hang on so we get, see, you just jump into the conclusions. So we're going to do the entrances. And the entrances were we followed both guys live all the way from the dressing rooms, all the way down the hall, through Gorilla, uh-huh. out to the ring. Uh-huh. Well, I told Taker, I said, hey, man, I said, we're going to be shooting through here, so you need to go 
and move for the entrances. So Taker went, just walked down and went into Vince's office to watch the show. Never came back. So we have the match. Everything happens. I'm done, and I'm, I'm sitting there like a sitting duck. I have no clue what's going on. And I get up, and I'm going to go back to Vince's office where all my stuff was and where, you know, we all had our stuff. And as I'm walking back, I see Undertaker standing in the hallway to Vince's office with his arms crossed, kind of looking around. And I'm like, son of a bitch. He knew. Yeah. And now he's guarding Vince's office. Mm-hmm. And I blow by him. And he's looking at me like I got steaming turds hanging out of my mouth. And we don't say anything to each other. Well, enough, you're going to say something. Yeah, we don't. You know, I, I'm mad at him because yeah. I think he knows. He's mad at me because he thinks I know. And he thinks I sent him away. Hmm. So that he wouldn't be there when it happened. Now, what the hell he could have done about it or anything else, I don't know. But, you know, so we think each other knows. And that was just my personal little thing that we had. Did y'all talk about it later? Oh, yeah. So he did know. No, he never knew. No, he did not know. But he thought you knew. He thought I knew. And I thought he knew. And nobody knew. And nobody knew. Okay. So we were mad at each other and we were both kind of. On the same boat. Yeah. Hi, guys. This is Bruce Mitchell from the Pro Wrestling Torch. Hi, Mr. Pritchard. I hope you are nice and dry. I hope everyone is getting out from under this horrible storm in Houston, Texas. Oh, I I did want to bring up some of my favorite um, Conrad Thompson, Bruce Pritchard, something to wrestle with. I really like, because I'm an old guy just like Bruce, I really liked um, his memories of Houston wrestling. Um, Don't worry. The storm couldn't be karma for some of the things you did back then, Bruce. Uh, And then, of course... Well, maybe you shouldn't listen to the Montreal Screwjob episode. Anyway, I got to get back to it, so um, keep trying. Hey to everyone, this is Matt Kuhn with Something to Wrestle. I am just breaking in to let everyone know I am not responsible for the music bed under Bruce Mitchell. That is terrible, and I had nothing to do with it. Thank you. All right, episode six is the first time we ever heard Bruce break out the Jim Ross impression. Bruce has dusted off new impressions seemingly every other week. Most recently, we were treated to Jamie Noble in the SummerSlam 2002 episode. Silva, is that near the top of your Bruce Pritchard favorite impression list? It is me. The first thing that I that I thought of when I heard him do Jamie Noble was, I got to make a head for our live shows of Jamie Noble because he is top-notch, one of the best that Bruce does now in my book. Right under Dusty, I love his Dusty. is my all-time favorite. But come on, Jamie Noble. Come on, bro. Get in there. Get in there. <laughs> Get it in there. Just killed me. So if you haven't already, check out the SummerSlam 02 episode for Jamie Noble. But first, check out Jim Ross talking about Dr. Death on our Brawl for All episode. You got Dr. Death Steve Williams, who was a top guy that was coming in to the company that we were hoping would be a top guy that we could draw some money with. So let's talk about that. You brought him up and I'm really excited to talk about this because lots of rumors and innuendo, as you say here, what's the real story on how Dr. Death came into the company. I remember, uh, in 1998 being at, I'm from Huntsville, Alabama, of course, for everyone listening, not that you need to know that it just makes sense for this story. 
Raw was in from Jersey. <laughs> Raw, yeah, can you tell from my accent, bro? <laughs> uh, so Raw's in Birmingham, and uh, just standing in the middle of the crowd is Doctor Death, Steve Williams, just wearing a T-shirt. No one bothering him at all. I don't think anybody recognized that's who it was. I went over, introduced myself. He hadn't yet made his debut, so that told me, hey, he's hanging around. He's going to be coming in. Was this the vehicle uh, that you guys used to sign him? Uh, was it a way for someone to slide him a slightly better deal? Uh, how was the, how was he presented as being someone who should participate in the tournament? If we are at the same time putting guys like Eight Ball and Scorpio and Bob Holly and Savio Vega, again not disparaging, just saying if he was to be positioned as a top guy. There's lots of rumors and innuendo that he's supposed to walk through the competition and then be programmed against Stone Cold Steve Austin for a big payoff at a fight. Kind of clear up how he comes into the tournament and what all that looked like. First of all, Doc was already under contract. Okay, so, so we had already signed Dr. Death to a contract. And no, this was not a part of the deal to bring Doc in and or to be a part of. So we had Doc under contract. It was a way for... Um, Russo, I think, looked at it as a way to introduce Doc because Dr. Death had been touted as, and I don't mean to speak ill of the dead, you know, as the toughest guy walking the earth. And Steve Dr. Death Williams in his day was one of the toughest men walking the face of the earth. And that's when Doc was young and in shape, and Doc Doc was a badass, and, legit. And, and you were with him in Texas. Tell everybody about that because you guys were together for a little while in UWF. Just so, uh, you know, I mean, I consider Steve Williams, he's a good friend of mine and a wonderful, wonderful human being. But you talk about a legit badass athlete, played football, wrestled in college at the University of Oklahoma, and there wasn't much athletically that he couldn't do. But Doc had been out of that competitive game for quite some time now that he's coming into the WWF at the time. And... You know, Doc coming into this was pretty much an odds-on favorite to win the damn thing. So I think Russo was looking at it as a way to introduce Steve Dr. Death Williams. I know JR was looking at it that it was there was no one else, I think, honestly, that Jim really even considered, you know, that could win the thing if Doc were in it. And Jim was a big proponent of Dr. Death Steve Williams. And you look at the competition, to your point, of the guys that did agree to do it. And again, back to your point, of the talent that was asked, those are the guys that agreed to do it. So and, let, let me know, ask we, this. You, you mentioned it, and I want to get on it before we get too far down the road. Jim Ross has a great uh, relationship that everybody who listens to this probably already knows about with Dr. Death Steve Williams. And you, uh, at times, can do phenomenal impressions. I want you to, if you can, can you be a little over the top? We're not saying this actually happened. We're just saying, you know, let's be a little over the top and let's have fun with good old JR talking to you guys about how he feels Dr. Death will do in this tournament. Well, ain't nobody else. Doc's a man. If you want, if you, you want somebody to win this thing, walk through the wall, that's Dr. Death Steve Williams. See that wall right there? He'll walk through it. He'll beat, he'll beat everybody in that tournament. They know that. They ain't no discussing it. But Jim, you know, a passionate Thank guy. You. I love Jim Ross to death. But again, it's nobody really knew. We didn't know what the hell we had. 
All right, ladies and gentlemen, a legend is born in episode seven. Who would have ever imagined in an episode named the steroid trial that we would learn about the man, the myth, the legend that is Jerry Jarrett. Is this the gift that keeps on giving Matt? It feels like this is uh, Jerry Jarrett. You know, I even made the mistake of saying, I don't know when we'll talk about him again. And now he's a regular part of the show. Who would have thought, right? Absolutely. This is without a doubt the best bit in the history of the show. So if you've been a little confused about, huh, or chicken salad, here it is in all its glory from episode seven, the steroid trial. There is this big rumor online that we've heard about for a long time. And I can't wait for you to shit on it because I know you don't like him. So let's get into it. There's talk that Vince started to make a contingency plan. That if he was to be found guilty, not that he wanted to be or thought that he would be, but he was fighting for his life. If he had to go away, he needed somebody to hold the fort down. And the rumors and innuendo would lead us to believe that that person was Mr. Jerry Jarrett. So I want you to kind of talk about what's true, what's not true, and what Jerry's involvement was at the time. Jerry was a consultant at the time, um, consulting us uh, with TV and consulting, um, you know, to be really blunt, I, I couldn't tell you what he was consulting on because it was mostly gibberish, but that's what he was there for was to, to consult and give us another head, different way of looking at things. Whose idea was it to to bring him in as a consultant? I believe it was JJ Dillon and, uh, Vince's idea. I think it was JJ's original, you know, Hey, what about this guy? So do you think that But I don't know that because he was there when I came back. So do you think that, uh, Vince, had a lot of respect for what Jerry did in Memphis, or he just knew that uh, he Vince was... didn't know Jerry Jarrett, you know, and and that was part of bringing Jerry in was to see if this guy knows anything, see if there's anything there. And after being exposed to Jerry Jarrett, I guess you could say that Jerry Jarrett was exposed. So let's talk about that. Uh, why do you think the Internet likes to um yeah i know people hate when i call it the internet why do you think the common theory is that he was there to kind of take the helm because jared jared timing and i'm sure jerry jared probably told people that and he writes it in his book and he but talks, I'm, I'm gonna give you a cl- i'm gonna give you i'm gonna give you a little i'm gonna give you a little statement here and okay. this is a fact jerry jared is a liar okay if jerry's mouth is moving he's lying Nine times out of ten. Um, do you think that Jerry was a good booker in Memphis? No, I don't. I think that Jerry surrounded himself with great bookers and Jerry Lawler and Bill Dundee and was blessed with uh, with some good bookers and some good idea guys back in the day. When you worked with Jerry uh, for, for Vince, do you remember him contributing any good ideas? Not one. Do you remember it's one of the most painful things I've ever endured in my life having to work with that person? Why though? I mean, because you're not, you're not he's an idiot. Much. Huh? G- give me an example. Why is he? How is he an idiot? Why is he an idiot? Uh, you know, I, I think that he lived in his small world there in the in the Tennessee area, 
I live and in I live in Alabama. Successful. Watch your mouth. You live in Alabama. Calm yeah, down. You do. Okay. But he he lived in in his little fiefdom where no one challenged him and that he was able to create this aura of genius and this mastermind and this wonderful businessman. You take him out of Hendersonville, Tennessee, and it all just goes back to Kentucky and Tennessee, and he can't get beyond that. Now, I'm a southerner. I'm from Texas. It sounds like you're yeah. shitting on the South a little bit right there, no, I'm not. No, I'm not shitting on the South. I'm sitting on. I'm shitting on the myth of Jerry Jarrett being a genius, um, because I never saw it. I never. I never heard one good idea. I never heard uh, anything that would work in the year 1990 and beyond. Hell, I didn't even hear anything that would have worked in the 80s. Um. So it was simply, you know, no different than everybody else that we brought in. Let's try them out. Let's see what they got. And it just didn't work. Would he it have, did not work. Would he have been there at the time you were getting a pay cut? Uh, boo. No, I don't think so. I think he was already gone by then. So, okay, so by the time he was gone before the trial was over. I believe so, yeah. Okay. I don't, I don't know the exact timing of it, but uh, I believe he was already gone, yeah. He do had to you, go home. Do you remember uh, how that relationship ended, how Jerry left New York? Yeah, he went home. I mean, he, he couldn't take it anymore. He was he was homesick. Um, he had a, you know, he had two teenage kids. So he wasn't, he, he wasn't ran off. He, he wanted to leave. He wanted to leave. Yeah. He wanted to go home. He, again, he's got, he had young kids. I say young kids. They were teenagers. Right. And a wife in Tennessee. He had never, ever been away from home. And it was a completely different world. Um, can you give us a fun Jerry Jarrett story? I mean, you obviously have some that there you're keeping There was never here, so. any fun with Jerry Jarrett. It was, it well, was like... Well, come on. You, you're good it at... It was like getting kicked in the nuts 24 hours a day. Do you realize that we have been talking for more than an hour now, and you have yet to break out one impression? When are we ever going to talk about Jerry Jarrett again? <laughs> Tell us, if you're oh. Jerry Jarrett, and let's just say you guys are sitting by the pool... And you're at Vince's house, and you're trying to do some booking, and his personal chef is there, and he's going to prepare lunch for you guys, and maybe he's <laughs> going to have chicken salad, and he wants a chicken salad sandwich no. for lunch. Give no, us another. You know, Jerry had a Jerry had a habit, and you you know these people, you you know. Well, I, I was, and well, you know, there there was that time. Hey, well, you know. It, it ended about time for lunch. Hey, could you make, you know, like some, some, you know, uh, well, you know, some uh, chicken salad, you know, you get the chicken, you know, and then you get the walnuts, you know, and you, and you know, you know, you chop them up and then maybe some grapes and then a little, you, you know, some mayonnaise and mix it up, maybe some chicken salad, you know, you know, you know, maybe that'd be good, you know. Well, let's, oh, God, I tell you what, man, after about the 40th, you know, 
and I would look at him. I go, no, you know, I don't know. I don't. So no, stop asking me if I know. I don't. Yeah, it was frustrating. It was it was frustrating. I, I didn't have uh, a good experience uh, in any way, shape, or form with him. Jeff, I like. Um, you know, I, I like Jeff a lot. Got a lot of respect for Jeff. Um, we've we've had our ups and downs, but you know, I like his son. But uh, don't care for Jerry Jarrett in any way, shape, or form. Um, are you ever in a car with him and frustrated? Well, maybe, yeah, I sure have been. Maybe Pat was in the car or Vince was in the car. Uh, God. You know, see, I tell you things and you bring it up on the air. Well, we don't, we don't just, have to talk about well, it. The, the, I'll, I'll tell you. No, everybody's going now. What, what's the story? <laughs> the, the, story the story is, is that we were, we were in a car and we were on our way to uh, believe the garden. And this is back when cars had phones in them and we didn't have individual uh, cell phones and Vince wanted to know what the ratings were and Jerry since Vince was driving Jerry was going to be the one to call and Jerry calls and calls Vince's assistant at the time Sylvia and the conversation from our end sounded kind of like hello uh huh yeah well it's Jerry we're in the car, and, well, Vince, uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah, oh, really? Oh, wow. Well, uh-huh, yeah, uh-huh. Well, well, we were wondering if, if we got the ratings in yet. Oh, okay, uh-huh, oh, okay, yeah, all right. Okay, oh, all right, all right. All right, well, bye-bye. Hangs the phone up, and there's just silence. <laughs> and everybody's looking at each other, and Vince looks at Jerry and says, Well? And Jerry looks at Vince, Huh? The ratings, pal, damn it, the ratings. Oh, 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 they're not in yet. <laughs> You know, what's so funny to me about that clip too, guys, is it really has made Jerry Jarrett famous for something else. We, we learned several weeks later that if you started to type in Jerry Jarrett into your Google machine, one of the, the first suggestions that would pop up is chicken salad. And that's when I knew, hey, man, the show is catching on. But our first big show, as far as downloads, was The Radicals. A little peek behind the curtain here. We know that we've got a home run show on our hands when we see the downloads for day one, which is always our best day, but on day two, they're higher. Day two for episode eight was through the roof. The Radicals episode was probably our biggest episode to date. Uh, at that time, we didn't really know what we had, and word spread quickly that we were talking about Eddie Guerrero and Chris Benoit and their journey to the top, and ultimately, a not-so-happy ending. It's an emotional episode, and there's lots of sad stuff in there, but that's not what today's about. Today is about having fun, and uh, thankfully they've patched things up. But this episode got us in a little bit of hot water with Conan. There's another guy that's not often mentioned in this group, but we should address it. Conan uh, was 
often discussed as being someone else who wanted out. He wasn't happy with the direction of WCW and the way that some of the Hispanic performers were being treated. And he had been with the WWF for a brief hiccup back in the day. Let's, let's talk about that. I don't know when we'll talk about it again, but, uh, Conan of course was the Hulk Hogan of Mexico. I mean, a huge star. Oh my God. He was a soap opera star. He was the biggest, he was the biggest star at AAA. He helped put AAA on the map. Uh, a lot of success very early in life. Very muscular guy had a phenomenal look, great performer, very colorful. I mean, just big time performer. But somehow, a few years before all of this, he kind of, I don't know, flirted with the idea of coming to WWF. What happened with the Max Moon situation and how all that shook out? I wasn't there when uh, Conan came in. That was during my hiatus in, in 1991. And to answer a fan who asked a question about why I was fired in 1981, it was because I didn't get along. 91. You said 81. I'm sorry, 1991. It was because I didn't get along with the executive producer that they had hired. And uh, 100% my fault, my ego, my uh, naivete, and just being a cocky young brat that thought he had all the answers and didn't want to get along with anybody um, other than those that I thought I had to. So in 92, when the Max Moon character is first coming around, you're not there. I was there right after uh, SummerSlam in Wembley was uh, the TV in Hershey. That was my first day back. And ultimately, uh, and that I, think, de- I think Paul Diamond debuted with that shortly after that. Yeah. So, yeah. but you don't. Know- I was there for Max Moon. I wasn't there for Conan, who was going to be Max Moon originally when you guys pulled his yes. name out of the box. Oh, gimmick. Yes. Or they, you weren't there. Maybe it was Finkel that day. I wasn't there. Yeah. Maybe Howard pulled it out and said, "Hey, I here's we got a Max Moon gimmick." Yeah. Exactly. Okay. That's what happened. Um, so this kind of carry me T-shirt through. available at ProWrestlingTees.com forward slash Bruce Pritchard. But go ahead. Uh, yeah. Check out your box of gimmicks. T. Everybody needs that. Uh, Conan wants out at the time. Right. Asked for his release, uh, but is not a part of the group. Doesn't make his debut with the Radicals. Um, what happened? Where was Conan in all this? <sighs> Funny story. You know, I knew you'd get me to this. This is a funny story. This is a misunderstanding, but it is kind of comical in its misunderstanding. At the time, I was not watching WCW. Um, Nobody was. That was the problem. I I get it. Um, but, But I wasn't watching it, and even when I did watch it, I wasn't, you know, didn't pay a whole lot of attention except for what I wanted to pay attention to. I was at the office. And this is the same day that we're meeting with uh, the four guys that are coming in. And there's somebody that keeps calling and keeps calling. And, and the girls are, I, I guess, had uh, told them nobody was in. And I come in and they say, hey, man, this guy's calling, so on and so forth. Would you please take the call? Because he, he just won't let up. I take the call. And the call is... Yo, 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 it's K-Dog. Now, I hadn't watched WCW at this at this time. I, I didn't. I knew Conan as Conan. Right. Knew him as Charlie. Knew him as Conan. And he was he was talking in a way that it was, yo, 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 K-Dog. I'm, yo, 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 it's K-Dog. I didn't know who the hell K-Dog was. I had no idea who he was. And he talked about being with the NWO and he's, uh, 
at WCW and he wants to come in, wants to know if we have anything for him. I told him to send a tape, send me some pictures and tape. I had no idea who you asked Conan, one of the biggest stars in the history of Mexican wrestling. No, I, I no, no, hang on. No, I asked K dog. Okay. <laughs> I didn't know what was Conan for um, tapes for tapes and pictures and send them in. And his response was, I, you know, I don't really, <laughs> it couldn't have been favorable. Yeah, it wasn't favorable. And it was, you know, I guess very insulting to him, but I didn't, I didn't put Conan. And again, it's like, you know how you meet somebody in a prior life and they go somewhere else and they're a different name. You, you probably run across this all the time. Yeah. I met Bruce Pritchard. There you go. And he used to be brother. He, I used to be brother. He used to be over. Right. I used to be over. Um, but you know, Bruce. So if you were to see me as brother love, you'd still call me Bruce. Right. Well, if I was to have seen K dog at that time, I still would have known him as Conan. Right. And so you block out sometimes. I, I really didn't, uh, really didn't mean any disrespect and it was simply that my ignorance of not realizing who the hell k-dog was i hung up with him and howard finkel came in and said who was that i said somebody named k-dog he said conan I said no 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 he, he was he said his name was k-dog i says yeah that's conan wow and I felt like an idiot, um, but I didn't, you know, I didn't have his number. I was like, okay, but you know, I asked, um, Vince and them said, you guys have any interest in Conan? They, they didn't have any interest in him anyway. Um, so I was going to wait for those pictures and tape to come in, I guess. But the, he, he called, uh, I guess Eddie Guerrero later and was appalled <laughs> that I had asked him to send tape and pictures in and I never, you know, so you don't, you... Eddie found it. Eddie found it kind of funny. Um, he says, he goes, man, did you really, did you really ask Conan to send pictures and tape? I said, I didn't know it was him. I, he kept saying K dog and I didn't put the two together and it's been, you know, it was one of those days. So just to be clear, because we're going to get hate tweets on this. Oh, I'm sure we will. You don't dislike Conan. Conan's not a poor performer to you. You're not shitting on him. No. You just didn't correlate the two. No. When I, you know, if I saw K, if I saw Conan on TV and he was going by uh, Charlie Chan, I would say, oh, that's Conan. You know, I didn't, I, and I hadn't watched. I didn't know he had changed his name to K-Dog. Right. I had no clue at all. And to me, it was Conan. And I didn't, he didn't say, this is Conan. <laughs> this is K-Dog. Like, Sorry. You're getting a receipt on his podcast next week. I, You know, I will, but uh, accept my apology now. And, uh, you know, I really, I, I swear to God, meant no, no disrespect whatsoever. I didn't. Why, why do you think there was no interest from Vince and company in him? You'd have to ask Vince. I don't know. 
Yo, everybody, I just want to say, Houston, man, we're behind you. We got our prayers out. Uh, you know, make sure that you support Bruce Pritchard and lovehouston.com. Uh, uh, and Bruce, uh, come love on back. Lovehouston.com. Lovehouston.com. And Bruce Pritchard waiting to hear you back on your show. Boom. Uh, I want to say to Bruce Pritchard, I love you. And I love Houston, and I hope they, uh, I hope things turn around there. But definitely uh, lovehouston.com. Go check it out. Loveforhouston.com is the place Just like my boy Conrad is the illest co-host in the game Bruce Pritchard's doing a great thing For all the great people of Texas Please support Loveforhouston.com And our podcast brothers Conrad Thompson and Big Bruce Pritchard, baby Woo! Keeping it 100, boom Hey guys, former WWE superstar Hornswoggle here And I just wanted to talk about one of my favorite moments from the show And that was when let that happen but i'll give you a pass on that one you guys put on an amazing podcast it's award-winning just ask bruce himself thank you guys for all the humor you bring me and the laughs you bring me and all the something to wrestle with fans every week keep doing what you're doing guys we love it you know it's wrestlemania so you know hulk hogan's figured in big but you revealed it before what the original idea was and i don't think that we've really expanded on that here on your show kind of lay that out for everybody well the original original idea was let's set the backstory it's summer 1990 uh earthquake attacks hulk hogan gives hogan some time off tv he's gonna go film suburban commando i think is that right i think that was the one yeah so he films suburban commando which actually comes out a couple months after wrestlemania 7 so that timeline lines up and uh, he does the, uh, the chest finish the, the sit down gimmick on, uh, Hogan and then Hogan's out and he's off TV and his, uh, there's a new character tugboat is introduced and he is Hogan's pal and he's going to try to come to the rescue and help him. And, um, they're doing these bracelets and you can get one of these bracelets if you'll just write in and blah, blah, blah. And you're supporting your hoaxer and. They're showing all these letters that are coming in. You guys are doing a an address capture campaign, which is pretty amazing. People do it with email and text message numbers now, but back then snail mail was the deal. And uh, got to build that mailing list. And so it builds to SummerSlam 1990, which is Earthquake versus Hulk Hogan um, in Philadelphia. And the seeds are starting to be planted. What was the original plan for WrestleMania Seven? The original plan was we had uh, Sarge coming back, and and we had Adnan uh, Adnan Al KC, and there were there was turmoil in the Middle East with Iraq and what have you, and Iraq being invaded. And, um, or I'm sorry, Kuwait being invaded by Iraq. And 
the idea was that Hulk Hogan's good new best friend, Tugboat, would turn his back on America and the Hulkster and adopt the ways of the Middle East and be chic tugboat against the all-American, the real American, Hulk Hogan. How would Slaughter have been figured into that? Well, Sarge was going to kind of be, you know, peripheral <laughs> character at the time. There was the idea to do chic tugboat was before Sarge came in. Sarge came back right before SummerSlam, I believe. We did the Great American uh, Sergeant Slaughter Award. So this idea was even before that. So we had taken Hogan out after WrestleMania sometime, and then you know Hogan was coming back at, at SummerSlam. But in the meantime... The idea was that it would be Tugboat that would be the one to lead that charge and Tugboat be his friend and that Tugboat would be the one that would eventually turn. Along the way, Sarge comes back. Fresh off his G.I. Joe deal. Yep. And Sarge comes back and it's like, well, what if the real American hero, G.I. Joe, Sergeant Slaughter, turned his back on America? And the real American Hulk Hogan. So thank God <laughs> for Sergeant Slaughter uh, coming back when he did and stepping into that role. But the buildup was one of Sarge being an Iraqi sympathizer. And wait, wait hang on. Why would why would Vince have picked Tugboat? Because he was a big, huge guy and humongous arms and big pythons if you will and they just saw a monster a monster yeah and it was a big monster for for hogan to destroy when it came time big guy to beat so like to like to create monsters for the holster so an audible is called at this point uh and for um whatever reason well thank god we hadn't got into the turn (laughs) but y'all had already started to like do some teases well we had had done the teases with you know tugboat being the one to to bring hulk back and everything man tugboat and hogan teams at survivor series we were kind of already that that ship had sailed so to speak all right, in episode 10, we finally learned what Bruce really felt about ECW. He's in the background yelling bingo numbers over and over and over as we cover the WWF-ECW relationship from 96-97. But he was on his best behavior a couple of months back when we finally took Bruce to see the ECW arena in person. Silva, you were there. It was kind of shocking that Bruce was on his best behavior, right? Bruce was behaved he was in awe. He wanted to know where things were in the arena. He wanted to know how things ran. It, he really, you could really tell that there was respect there. There was respect there, and you felt it in the arena that history was made in that building. Well, and we learned in this episode that maybe there should have been a little more respect for Jerry Briscoe or The Undertaker when they did their skit at Mind Games in September of 1996. Bruce Pritchard knew what was going on. Vince McMahon knew what was going on. And Paul Heyman knew. But not everybody did. Episode 10. Let's go to September of 1996. We're in Philadelphia. 
It's in your house mind games and in the free for all section of the show. And for those of you who uh, weren't watching at the time, the WWF had a pay-per-view every month, but they had a little segment about a half hour before the pay-per-view that they called the free for all. And it was essentially because it was free for all for all. And it was uh, how catchy was that? And so it's it, it's an appetite, um, you know, it, it's an appetizer for the show. So you get the live shots, you get a free match, you get the uh, the big hard sell for the pay per view, you get some promos for the main events and the hot angles. Good concept at the time. And in September of '96, uh, Justin uh, Brad, uh, Hawk Bradshaw is wrestling against Savio Vega. And in the front row, there are some local Philadelphia residents. And I know there's a backstory here. Kind of carry us through how that came about and what the thinking at the time was. Well, the pay-per-view was in Philadelphia, which was ECW's home. And ECW, as I said before, they, they had a cult following. They had some rabid, vocal, passionate, loyal fans. And Philly is one of those towns... Probably, I'm not going to say it is my favorite place, but it's one of my favorite places to work because of the audience, because of the crowd. Uh, They let you know if they like you. They let you know if they don't like you. Uh, But they care. And we had Mick Foley in his first main event, really, with us, uh, wrestling Shawn Michaels. Phenomenal match, underrated, if you haven't seen it. One of the best ever. Go check it out. Uh, In Your House Mind Game, September 96, Mankind, Shawn Michaels, five stars, awesome stuff. So, you know, we're helping Paul out, and they're helping us out with having a place for guys to go and what have you. So the idea was, since we're in Philadelphia locally, and we knew there would be a strong presence of fans and probably get some of those ECW chants and whatever, that... It was a place that we could spotlight ECW, give them, you know, a spotlight on the pay-per-view and also help them out locally and also get them some national exposure as well. So the idea was, was that Paul Heyman, Tommy Dreamer and the Sandman would come in during the free-for-all make their way down to ringside quietly and sit in the front row. And as they sat in the front row, we would make a a big deal out of, but also try to kind of uh, low-key it for the live audience, make it look like we're trying to not make a big deal out of it while we're making a big deal out of it, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And Paul would be Paul and show that he had his tickets and, so on and so forth and all this other crap. And, you know, the ushers and security would kind of shrug their shoulders. Well, in in that area, because I had been to ECW shows there and people knew that every once in a while I would show up. And for the smart fans, they knew Paul and I were friends and what have you. So I came down as Bruce and, and kind of, you know, off camera and went down to the front row and I'm, you know, pleading with Paul, like, what the hell are you doing here, man? Come on. You're just trying to make a name. Why don't you guys go and do something else? And 
Paul's like, I trust you. Trust me. We won't do anything wrong. Blah, blah, blah. Sandman's putting a cigarette in his mouth and threatening to light it and all this stuff. Um, and as I turned around to walk back up the aisle behind my back, Paul stands up on the chair and gives me the double middle fingers and the crowd erupts. Wow. So we go back and, and the boys now keep in mind, the only people that know about this is me, Vince McMahon, Paul Heyman, and I'm sure Paul smartened up Tommy Dreamer and Sandman. So none of our crew, none of our guys in the back know that, hey, man, this is work. We're working together. It's all cool. Well, they're getting fired up. And they're like, well, we'll just go out there and kick their ass. And I'm like, guys, whatever you do, do not acknowledge them. If they do something, you know, uh, just get the hell away from them and don't engage. Whatever you do, don't engage. It's just going to do exactly what they want us to do. Well, how beforehand. Comfortable, how comfortable yeah. with you with working the boys like that? I'm sorry? How comfortable were you with working the boys? Not. Like? I'm not comfortable doing that. I hated doing it. But it was it was something I was asked to do, and I did it. And we felt that for the real reaction, to get a true reaction, you can't always let people know what the hell's going to happen. And we wanted a real reaction. And all too often, if someone knows that something's coming or they know um, they're, they're waiting for it, they're acting instead of reacting. And we wanted a reaction. We wanted an honest to God, oh shit moment. So, so when you said you were asked you know, <laughs> to do this, who asked you to do it? Well, let's go back to the only people that knew about it. And who the hell do you think would have asked me to I'm just not curious, tell anybody? Why, Vince. Why, Vince asked me not to share it with anybody. Why would Vince? Because for that reason, I just explained, we want a real reactions from people. This seems odd. And if everybody knows about it, then they're waiting for it. You're, you're setting up a spot and you're not getting a true reaction from people. Sure. So that, that's the reasoning behind it. But the one thing that I did do, because John Layfield is a big strapping Texan and crazier and all get out, I wasn't sure what the hell would happen if 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 John got a little too close to these guys and, and something were to take place. So I told Savio Vega, I said, listen, no matter what happens out there, I don't give a shit if they come over the railing, no matter what happens. You tie that big cowboy up, and you do not let him touch anybody. And I'm putting that on you. You're the one in charge out there because they were in a strap match. And I said, so when if you guys get out in the ring, out, outside of the ring, or anything happens, you tie that cowboy up, and you don't let him get involved. So based on the way you explain that, he has to think uh, maybe there's something up here. A smart guy would probably think, okay, they're going to do something, right? Well, the idea was was when um, uh, Savio and Bradshaw were outside of the ring, and I knew the spot for Sandman to get up and spit beer on Savio. And I had security there, and I had people there, and I told them if they so much as breathe in the wrong direction or anything else, I want them taken out. So when Sandman spit, 
that was their cue to get him the hell out of there. Savio did his part. He kept Bradshaw away. Bradshaw's looking. Brad in the the camera crew. The, the camera shots were so that you saw it, but you didn't see it. So it was framed, so you would see it. But then we didn't go to it, so it didn't look like a work, and that this was a plant. What I didn't really anticipate. I did, but I didn't. I thought Paul would would have a little bit better control than he did, and and knowing Paul, um, after that, I didn't give him a whole lot of rope. But they stayed down there too long, and it made me come down and made Jerry Briscoe come down and uh, Rene Goulet and a few other agents. And Paul and I had a safe word <laughs> that if if it got too heavy and I needed them to just get the hell out of there to get the hell out of there if if I said this one word to him. Whose idea was a safe word? Who do you think? We uh, must have a safe word in case things get out of hand and you are ready to abort. You just look at me and you say, hmm, Bockwinkle. And I will know that it is time to go. So, uh, okay, yeah, I got it, man. And um, so they get down there, and they took it a little too far. But what I didn't anticipate is when the agents got involved and the guys and Dreamer and and Sandman are really getting everybody riled up. And you feel the crowd, man, and it was hot. Uh It was hot. It was good. Well, when I get down there, my fat ass can't get over the rail to get on the other side of the railing and Jerry Briscoe is there and Briscoe jumps over the railing and I grabbed Jerry and I said, go get in Heyman's face and tell him Bruce said, Bockwinkle, get the fuck out of here. And there was that moment where Jerry Briscoe turned and stared at me. And if looks could kill, I would have been dead about a hundred times. Because Briscoe was ready to kick somebody's ass. Sure. And in the middle of it, I'm basically saying, hey, Jerry, it's it's all the work, man. Just uh, calm down, big boy, and, and go do this. Briscoe didn't speak to me for three days after that. Wow. Did not speak. He was so mad. The other thing I didn't anticipate was when I got backstage, the boys were... All they were all at the gorilla position and they all wanted to come down and kick everybody's ass. And I got snatched by uh, a big six foot ten and a half redheaded dead man and taken into Vince's office and said, You need to tell me right now, was that planned? I'm like, Yeah. He says, Well, in the future, you need to smart somebody up back here because you almost had a damn riot. Right. But Mark, being Mark, kind of sensed that uh, we had it under control and that it was probably a work. But he was pissed that that I didn't at least clue him in on what the hell was going on so that the guys in the back weren't coming out and doing something crazy. Did you ever work uh, Undertaker ever again? Hell no. All right, episode 11 is Primetime Wrestling, and we get a request a lot for, when are you guys going to do a Bobby Heenan episode? Well, this was our Bobby Heenan episode. It was all about Primetime Wrestling, and you may remember, Primetime was mostly Gorilla Monsoon and Bobby Heenan in a studio, and Bruce Pritchard was their producer. So that show lent itself to a lot of hilarious Bobby Heenan clips. We can't possibly fit them all in here, but I did pick three for you to enjoy 
Uh, what's your favorite story, Matt, from all of the Bobby Heenan ribs and jokes that we. I got to go with something from this episode. It's hard to imagine a man who wants to rib people that he will never see again. And there's a story about some tourists and a rib he did on the tourists. And it's a rib they don't even find out till they get home. It's amazing. Bobby Heenan was one of a kind. And here he is in all his glory from episode 11. Bobby being classic Bobby folks. The, the guy that you saw on screen was the same guy in real life, except in real life, there was no filter and he was, he's all the way live. So Bobby, there's an old couple of, I believe they were Asian, and they were taking pictures, and they're taking pictures of one another, you know, off the deal. Bobby had a gimmick. Bobby used to say, "Oh, what a beautiful couple! Let me let me take the picture for you." And Bobby would cut the heads off in the picture. That was back in the day when your camera was a film camera and you had to take it in to get it developed and you would wait for your pictures to come back. And you're so excited about these pictures that you took. And this nice man took a picture of the two of you next to this one-of-a-kind thing and your head's cut off. That was Bobby's gimmick. But this one time they're out by the pool and Bobby says, oh, hey, let me take that picture. And Bobby backed these two nice elderly people right back into the pool. Oh my. Now there was a step, there was a ledge. They just went in about, you know, ankle deep, but yeah, absolutely classic. Wow. So there were good times with my, <laughs> you know, the, the dastardly things that he did on TV were, were not anything in comparison to what he did in real life. He tells a story about the hotel in Chicago, the Air Host Hotel in Chicago, which was a famous hotel where the boys all stayed. And it was a dump. It was a dumps dump. But the boys all stayed there because they had a bar that stayed open all night, and it was like 10 bucks a night. So one night or the next day, they're getting ready to leave, and, and uh, Bobby and Pat Patterson are there, and they're, they say, hey, you know what, this place is so horrible, we should probably just take a shit under the bed and leave it. And so they take the mattress off of the bed, and they look under the bed, and someone had already taken a shit (laughs) under the bed that they had been staying in all night. Did Andre used to take dumps in the tub? Yeah. In Japan, he couldn't fit. So he would just do a tub plop? Yeah. Was that normal? I mean, did a lot of guys do tub plops, or was it just Andre? Well, there weren't a lot of guys that were seven, four, five hundred pounds. But there were other big guys who maybe yeah, fit. they probably did. Yeah. So was it just what was the? I mean, like if that wasn't an option, it's tub and then bed, or bed then tub, or well, you lay newspaper down and you go in the tub and then you crumble it all up and throw it away. Wow, that's a lot of detail. I did not expect to hear. Have you have you done a tub plop before with newspaper? No. How do you know that? Because that's how the big guys had to do it. But who smartened you up about the newspaper? They did. Oh, okay. Sir, you have newspaper? <laughs> Andre need to shit. What? Uh, uh, hypothetically, was Andre ever 
never taking a shit when a lady offered to service him with her mouth. Okay, moving on. What? Yes, uh, we've had about enough of you. You're not going to tell that story? No, I'm not going to tell that story. An Andre Blumpkin is rating. Perfect pervert. Uh, Tweet at Bruce Pritchard uh, and use hashtag Andre Blumpkin if you'd like to hear the story. And you will be blocked. (laughs) That's great. You know, I still think that we could get that trending. Hashtag Andre Blumpkin. That ought to be a shirt. How is that not a shirt yet? I guess we were asleep at the wheel. But we weren't asleep at the wheel for episode 12. TNA Wrestling, easily our biggest show to date at that time. It broke all the download records. uh, And it was probably just right place, right time, man. It was a time when TNA was under a lot of scrutiny. There was a lot of controversy going on. Is Billy Corgan going to get control? Is Dixie entering out? What is next for the company? And Bruce pulled no punches. He talked about sending out empty FedExes. He talked about guys not getting paid. He talked about all the mismanagement that was TNA wrestling. And uh, we even heard a little bit about Vince McMahon's opinion of Samoa Joe. And considering where we are today, it blew my mind and it will yours too. Samoa Joe. This is where we're playing the word association. Huh? Um, Joe. Monster. He was in Ring of Honor, did a phenomenal job in Ring of Honor. It was huge. Huge. And kind of interesting, you know, I don't know that people really think about this, but he starts wrestling with John Cena in California. Their careers split. Cena goes and does the developmental deal. Joe goes and becomes Ring of Honor champ, has tremendous success, gets signed to TNA. And when he's at Ring of Honor... Joe joins a guy named CM Punk. They have a tremendous series of matches in 04. They split again. Punk chooses developmental. Once again, Joe picks TNA. Joe wasn't offered. I mean, it wasn't like he had a choice. I'm just saying that their that career their path parallel is and weird. Went different paths. That Cena becomes a megastar. Punk becomes a really big deal. And seemingly, in both cases, it looks like short-term, Joe has made the better call. He's a big deal in Ring of Honor. He's a big deal in TNA. Look, I'm not going to disparage Ring of Honor, but but saying someone is a big deal in Ring of Honor is saying, like, I'm the the shift leader at Sonic. Okay. Well, I disagree, but that's cool. Okay. Um, And now Joe is just now really getting a shot and... I hope it's not too little too late. It feels like the TNA thing started off awesome, and then it petered out. Why do you think that is? What do you mean the TNA thing started awesome and petered out? Well, I mean, he was working pay-per-views with Kurt Angle, and then at well, the end, he's just kind of lost. That, you know, you can't stay on top forever. Uh, and, uh, uh, and he goes away uh, for uh, three, four, uh, five months at a time. Okay. I'm just saying, you know, he wasn't. In a featured spot the entire I'm not saying he had to be the champ the whole time. But it didn't Man, feel like- he should be featured. He should be everybody should be in the main event all the time. No, it doesn't work that way. So it comes a time you gotta get other people over and you, you take a rest. How will Joe do in WWE? I hope Joe does well. I think he's got the talent to do it and while, he's different. Why wasn't he considered in I'll 04, tell you why he was I'll tell you why he wasn't considered because they felt he was a fat Samoan. Well, uh, help me understand. They he got was him. out of shape. He looked out of shape. He wasn't the body type that Vince liked. And they felt that 
you know, it, it wouldn't work. There was a period where guys. Uh, this is a considered. bullshit answer. I'm giving you the truth. You asked me why I wasn't considered. Um, I gave you the exact quote of why he wasn't considered because he's a fat Samoan. He looks like a fat Samoan. What the fuck was Umaga? Part of the family. Is, it, is that the real answer? Yes, that's the real answer. Holy shit. Okay. That's so a, I'm giving you the truth wow. and you're calling bullshit. See, that's the problem. That's the problem with these fucking assholes that sit behind their little computer screen and go, every, well, they say, me, 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 me. You realize you're talking just, about our entire audience when you do that. No, uh, you know what? I love our entire audience and thank you for listening. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm keeping, <laughs> keeping it real here. And Joe, to he me, but let me, me tell you, let me tell you something, way. okay, about Joe. Here's what I liked about Joe. I like that he was a fat Samoan. Yeah. I like that he didn't look like everybody else. Right. I like that he didn't work like everybody else. I'm a fat white guy, okay? So I can relate to him. But he was a badass that you would believe was kicking everybody else's ass. Yeah. It was believable. It is believable. But when you're sitting there and your criteria is, I got to look like an athlete, pal. Okay, he is doing that stuff. But don't you think he's making it look good? He is an athlete. And Umaga, larger, still Samoan. Hell of a talent. Hell of an athlete. Why? Why is it that? Again, he was part of the family, man. So he was just born because apparently there's like two Samoan families. There's the one that The Rock is related to everyone, and then there's Samoa Joe. Right. (laughs) Yes. Okay, I'm just curious because it seems like around. But I'll give you a real answer. Well, that's a, that's a bullshit answer. No, no it's, a, it's okay. Now the listen. Truth. In fairness, it is a bullshit answer, but it is the real Vince McMahon answer, and I appreciate that. I gave you the real answer. You gave me well. You gave me Vince. It's not a real answer. I'm sorry. You asked me why he didn't get called up. Why we didn't want him then? Because He's when he was suggested, like ah, goddamn. Same reason that Vince didn't want to meet Cactus Jack back in the day. Yeah. Because he looked like a a, a fat bum to Vince. Let's circle back to something you were really excited to talk about. Signing China. That was a disaster. So as we were recording that intro right there, Silva, you got the giggles. I I feel like you've got a good story. Do you have a Samoa Joe story you can share with us? I love Samoa Joe because Samoa Joe is one brown like me, two a little on the big bone side like moi. So back in the day when he was with our ROH, I bought a shirt that said Samoa Joe and had his face in the middle of his name. And I was walking through the mall and I actually got stopped by someone and asked if I was Samoa Joe. And I said, no, I'm Mexican Dave. And that's why Samoa Joe was always going to be close to my heart. Into my tummy. Wow. Well. <laughs> Dave Silva, ladies and gentlemen, at least he's good at graphics. Episode 13 is the love triangle with Lita, Edge, and Matt Hardy. And uh, there's lots of interesting stuff on this show, but the thing that everybody's going to remember it for the most doot, doot, doot. All these years later, of course, Michael is still with the company uh, in a very prominent position, and the Hardy Boys are these days in TNA. Uh, let's talk a little bit about first signing Edge. Edge well, and- hang on. Let, let's back up a minute. You asked, yeah, you asked another part of that question that that is 
not very well known. I, I don't know if anyone's ever told the story. I think if anybody would, it'd probably be Matt. But you asked about how their attire came about and what have you, and the parachute pants and so on and so forth. I don't know that the, the answer to that question. I don't really recall exactly how that all came about. But I do remember Matt coming to me and, and telling a story about being on the road with Michael. And, and Michael liked to have a cocktail or two from time to time, as hard as that may be to comprehend. And Michael is an extremely intense individual. And one night while the three of them were together driving down the road or in a hotel room, I'm not really sure it's Matt's story, but Michael kind of looks at them and says, hey, I got an idea. We're going to get jackets made, full-length jackets, all the way, all the way down to our toes. And we're going to put utensils on them, knives, forks, spoons, just utensils all over jackets. That'll be cool. And then nothing. And Matt and Jeff are kind of looking at him and, and uh, just waiting for the punchline here. And there was no punchline. Michael's idea was he wanted to do these long dusters with uh, kitchen utensils or eating utensils. Flatware. Flatware. Do, do, do. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be cool, Nabes. Hardy boys, Mike VSA's Nabes. Hey, this is Tyson Kidd, although some of you may know me as TJ Wilson from Total Divas fame. Uh, I actually had the chance to sit with Bruce for a while in Brooklyn a couple of weeks ago. Unfortunately, old Conrad, he no-showed. Houston has always been one of my favorite cities. I actually missed Brett's wedding for a show in Houston a few years ago. Everyone in Houston is in my thoughts and prayers, and if you can, please go to loveforhouston.com and just know that every little bit helps. Thank you. All right, Silva, up next is the Survivor Series 1990. It was episode 14, and this is the first time we saw The Undertaker. So this episode was really about two things, all about The Undertaker, and if you're a big Undertaker fan, I can't recommend episode 14 for you enough. It's the genesis of The Undertaker. How was he hired, the the idea behind the character, the costume, the whole deal's there. Even hiring Paul Bearer is inside episode 14, But my favorite part of this episode, and uh, in fact, the 1990 Survivor Series, is the disaster that was the gobbledygooker. And since the gobbledygooker was played by a Hispanic, Dave Silva, this feels like it was fitting that this is when I first met you. You photoshopped a -a not-a-rib t-shirt on the gobbledygooker, and our, our love was born. True love. Just hugs and kisses since then. But I knew that Bruce would not commit to this being a rib on Hector Guerrero. So wait, wait, not what, a what's Hector's last name? Guerrero. Yeah. With the R. Guerrero. In Alabama, that's Guerrero. Guerrero. Yeah, it not is. Not Guerrero. Guerrero. All right, calm down, Michael Cole. Here's the clip from episode 14. <laughs> hey, you know the drinking on the show is a rib, right? For everybody that's seen it, you kind of remember the anticipation and the excitement of, of the egg starting to crack and the lights coming out. And, and, and by the way, the description of what was supposed to happen and what actually happened are two completely different things. Break it down for us. 
Well, yeah, you have to place yourself in a production meeting with Vince explaining that, and then the egg will shake. And as the egg shakes, it starts to, you start to see the egg crack. And as it cracks, one piece comes off and then lights come shining through the egg. And then we have like smoke and <coughs> like fireworks that come through the egg. And, and then the goddamn thing, it explodes and all this smoke and flames and everything come out. And then from the shell comes a gobbledygooker. Well, you saw what happened. The egg kind of shook a little bit, and then, and you could see the pre-cut cracks in the egg already. And uh, as the egg started to come apart, and the chicken came from the egg, there was the gobbledygooker. And on top of it, you know, we we did go over that. This was one thing. Yes, we went over things beforehand. We did go over this uh, prior to the event. And rehearsed it with Hector, and, and Hector was a gymnast teacher at the time. He was teaching gymnastics. So he had explained how he could do all these great flips and moonsaults and different things off the ropes and just do some incredible uh, acrobatic flips and what have you um, with, the, with the suit on. Well, once he got the suit on, he was very limited <laughs> as to what he could do because he couldn't see that well. <laughs> and the other thing is, is that when we rehearsed it, I don't remember having a microphone for Gene Okerlund for the initial interview with the gobbledygooker. So Gene was supposed to ask him what his name was, and of course Gene knew what the name was, that he was going to be the gobbledygooker, and, and Hector, we said, you know, you can't just come out and say the gobbledygooker, you have to sound like, you know, either a chicken or a turkey, like they would gobble, and be, you know, gobbledygooker. But Hector just kind of, you know, went, come here, and it was muddled, and just she couldn't understand a thing that he said, and then finally Gene said, what is with all this gobbledygook that you're, you're the, you're the what? You're the gobbledygooker. Oh my. But you could, I mean, it was like a fart in church. You could have heard a pin drop when, well, no, actually you couldn't have heard a pin drop because people were booing the shit out of it. And so that wasn't enough that we then sent them to the ring and had uh, Hector and Gene dance around for a little while and Hector do a couple of uh, forward rolls and then went for his big spot where originally it was supposed to be Hector go up to the top rope and do a big moonsault, which wasn't something that you know anybody did back then, and do a backwards moonsault into the ring and land on his feet. But he was uncomfortable doing that with uh, all the gobbledygooker gear that he had on and just did a forward roll over the top rope into the ring. So, yeah, it was the shits. Um, were you on, were you in gorilla when this happens? I probably was. I, I do remember watching it live going, just thinking where is a hole I can crawl into in my head. Vince is like dancing around to it, kind of bobbing his head and moving his shoulders. And he's trying to get into it. Cause he liked the idea. Do you see Vince when this is going on and what's his reaction? Well, you were there. Oh, that's what happened? <laughs> Pretty much. And laughing. 
Look at him. Look at him. Oh my God, they hate him. No, but he, he, I mean, he admitted it. Oh God, they're booing the shit out of him. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, they hate him. Okay, guys, episode 15 is all about Brian Pillman. What actually won the poll was Pillman's Got a Gun. And the original idea was just to cover that one specific angle from the fall of 1996. But I decided to just stretch it out and let's cover everything that happened with Brian Pillman in the WWF. And this is actually the first episode where we did extensive research. And by we, of course, I mean me. Uh, But this is, again, one of the more iconic Pritchard shows. If you haven't heard it in a long time or you've never heard it, you should go check it out because it tells a once in a lifetime story about a once in a lifetime character in Brian Pillman. And maybe the only time we're ever going to see a gun on WWF programming. Here's the story from Bruce Pritchard. Pillman now has both hands on the pistol and Melanie is screaming as Austin starts to break the glass on a door around the corner from the room they're in. And then Lawler starts screaming, will somebody call the police? And as Austin charges, Lawler screams, get out of there. Don't, 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 don't. And then we see Pillman stand up with a crazed look on his face and the gun pointed in Austin's direction. And then magically the feed is lost. Um, somewhere in here, he cursed. Um, no, not yet. Oh, not yet. You're right. No, not yet. So now the, the, the here, well, and, and then here's the story yeah. there. Okay. I'm inside the house. So I'm on the other side of the way that the basement was laid out was, where Brian and Melanie were and where the cameras were shooting one way and they could swing around, they could see the door and I'm kind of back behind in the room, but I had to hide behind a deal and we had a bat and we, we thought we knew what the hell the, the glass door was. Well, come to find out the damn glass is that safety glass. Oh shit. Oh shit is right. You ever hit safety glass? No, but it's not easy. Well, it ain't easy, and it makes a horrible, horrible racket. And so when Steve whacked that glass the first time, I'm like, what the hell was that? I thought a gunshot went off. For real. So you're not in the room with him off camera. No, I am in the room. Okay. But Steve's on the outside. Yeah. And Steve's trying to break the door in to, to come inside. And when he hits it with the thing, it was like, I'm expecting the glass to break and him to be barging inside at that point. Well, the glass doesn't break. And I, I can hear Steve on the outside kind of with an oh shit. <laughs> because... Now we've got, you know, that damn safety tempered glass that, that won't break. And he beats the piss out of that damn glass, finally caving it in and come in and on the inside. I'm half laughing my ass off because I know he's getting blown up on the outside <laughs> trying to beat this glass in. And then he's got to come in and we got to have the physicality and have everybody get involved on the inside, Brian is is panicking because Steve's not coming through. So Brian's like, well, shit, should I get up? Should I go, you know, and charge him and all this shit? And I'm trying to be like, calm down, calm down. He'll get through. He'll and this get is through. live. This is live. 
Oh, this is live as live can get, man. Yeah. Hey, everybody. This is Shuli, stand-up comic, on-air correspondent for the Howard Stern Show. Want to give a uh, special shout-out to everyone affected out in Texas. Uh, thoughts and prayers are with all of you, and we hope this nightmare ends sooner rather than later. I know one thing that's gotten me through some tough times has been this show, hearing Conrad and Bruce going back and forth discussing some of my favorite childhood memories. And without a doubt, my favorite episode would be the Vader episode, specifically for the conversation and breakdown of the rivalry between Goldust and Vader. And also the fact that Bruce never admitted one time that they were going out of their way to bury Vader. But my favorite part was Conrad recapping all the uh, hijinks that went on during this feud and uh, my favorite line was Vader who is wearing an eye patch because Goldust has already damaged one eye uh, and I quote Conrad reading then Goldust threw coffee in his good eye and uh, that line not only busted me up but it busted Bruce up and Conrad and it was just a good laugh at the ridiculousness of what was going on Uh, love all you guys love the show everybody be safe be well and roll tide Uh, November 24th in North Carolina uh, where Vader main evented once against uh, Ric Flair Starcade seems like a long time ago here we go Goldust comes out in a wheelchair and says that he's now quadriplegic and he has a nurse with him called Nurse Goodbody uh, Vader came out and attacked Goldust and the nurse, who turned out to be Luna Vachon. Who'd have thought? Uh, she threw alcohol in his eyes, and actually it took a couple of tries because she missed the first time. But she did manage to injure the eye, so he wore an eye patch for his main event match later in the show, where he lost to Shawn Michaels in under three minutes. Uh, after the match, Jim Neidhart and Triple H took turns beating him uh, until he fell out of the ring, and then Triple H threw coffee in his good eye, and Sean hit two super kicks. Uh, where were the shovels? You know, um, I wasn't doing uh, extensive creative at this time, and this this would have been Vince Russo. No, so I know it's kind of hard to believe, but um, you know, one of those things, man. When you read that, when it goes down and gets, this is burial with a capital B. Am I wrong? Yeah. You say no? Yeah. It's what it is. You know, we're supposed to have an opinion on this fucking thing. That's why people listen. They don't listen. Well, you know what? I mean, yeah, it's one. It's one of those things that kind of. When you're on the shit list and people tend to shit all over you. So, yeah, he was getting shit on here. Thank you. In December 97, there's talks with SEG. This is the outfit who owns the UFC. This is pre-Zufa. Remember, this is 97. And they supposedly, allegedly, hypothetically, offered the WWF $100,000 to have Shamrock on the show. But Vince turned it down flat. Uh, so you guys started to discuss the possibility of using Vader on a card for a UFC in Japan, but that offer is turned down too. This is all rumors and innuendo reported in the Wrestling Observer Newsletter. 
was there ever any serious consideration to letting either one of these guys do any sort of legitimate mixed martial arts? Shamrock, yes. But Leon had never done mixed martial arts. He well, was never a shoot fighter. No, I get that. But in my head, I mean, you're hitting him in the head with fucking hammers, making him wear eye patches, throwing coffee in the other eye. <laughs> 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 it's like you know hey you want a hundred thousand dollars to beat this guy fucking here you go <laughs> but that's what that's what would have happened so that was a bad investment because you know <laughs> bad investment yeah we gotta yeah. Him look strong you still don't we, want him to get beat by nobody we have we, we guys gotta look strong we're throwing coffee in his good eye. <laughs> i can't believe you can defend some of this shit man this is just it's uh I'm trying to keep, I'm trying to laugh to keep from crying. This is just, yeah, but, but, but you got to understand in, in that, in that instance, that's one of those things. Shamrock was a UFC guy. Shamrock probably could have held his own. Um, but Leon, that all that crap would have gotten all over the WWF. Okay. That's true. That's true. Uh, it's damn true. All right. Hang on for this. This is going to be fun. There's more of this shit. I can't believe it. The December 8th raw. Jeff Jarrett beats Vader, but the match never got started because Goldust comes out and flashes his junk at Vader, uh, and then Vader chased him away, leading to a countout. On the December 22nd edition of Raw, they have Vader come out dressed up like Santa Claus and attack Goldust. At the Goldust-Vader match at the December pay-per-view, In Your House Degeneration X, it was canceled because Goldust had three pins put into his hand. So it's delayed this good stuff. On the 12th of January, <laughs> you're laughing already. Goldust, <laughs> Goldust has a match with Vader on Raw. And in the match, <laughs> Goldust pulls a. <laughs> I can't believe it. You motherfuckers. Goldust hey, 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 hey. Let's make something perfectly clear. <laughs> Okay. Hang on, let Vince me Russo let had me a two-year run in WWE. I can tell what it That's started. That's it. Two years. Two fucking years. And everybody thinks he, he's, he's this goddamn genius. This is the shit he booked. On the 12th of January, Goldust is in a match against Vader on Raw. And in the match... <sighs> Go ahead. You want me I'm to do trying. it for you? Goldust pulls a coconut out of his bra. <laughs> He got a coconut, folks. Pull it right out of his bra. Huh. <laughs> and he hits Vader with it, therefore getting disqualified uh, because you can't hit people with coconuts. Have we not learned anything from Roddy Piper? Uh, later backstage, Vader is writhing in pain as Austin had apparently given him a stunner backstage. So, so far, <laughs> Goldust has hit him, in the, hit him in the head with a hammer and, and then flashed his flashed his junk at him and uh, played quadriplegic and put alcohol in his eyes and then they threw coffee in the good eye and then they dressed him up like Santa Claus and then they hit him with a coconut in his bra from his bra it's you know it's no wonder this wound up the way it did well this next episode is why we can't have more contracted WWE talent on the show today it's our sunny episode (laughs) episode 18 uh, clearly our most controversial show ever at that point, And we had no idea before we clicked the button 
a lot of people maybe didn't click on this episode because they thought, I don't care about Sunny. But man, there is some good stuff in there. Speaking of good stuff, uh, we've actually got two clips for you. The first one is about being a drug mule. And I feel like you live on the border and you may or may not know a drug mule, Dave Silva. Am I right? I cannot confirm nor deny that I know a couple of mules that carry the drugs. If you had a drug mule impression, what would it sound like? Psst, I got something for you, Vato. Here, let me put it somewhere. That's every impression Silva does of anybody. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I was really hoping for <laughs> Check out this clip from the Sunny episode. You won't believe this. I would go to Tijuana each month wearing a pair of overalls with lots of pockets, and I'd wear a baseball cap and bring a camera, so I looked like a complete tourist. I'd go to a few shops and buy eight or ten Mexican blankets, a piñata, and a bottle of tequila with the worm in it. The key is to park your car on the U.S. side and walk over the long bridge across the border and then walk back the same way. Why? Because if you drove across the border, there's a 99% chance your car will be completely torn apart and searched when you cross back. When you walk, your bags go through a metal detector, but not your body. So I would layer all these Mexican blankets and anything with metal, like syringes and vials, I would put in my pockets of my overalls. So when you walk back through security, they ask you what you need to declare. I acted like a happy tourist, just bringing home blankets for the family and tequila for my dad. And voila, now I'm a pro in the drug trafficking game. Your thoughts? Kind of sad. That's a shame. I would go back on the road and distribute the boys' orders, primarily to members of the clique. At a show in Texas, I gave Sean Waltman a bottle of 90s Annex, two milligrams each. By the end of the night, he had 20 left, and he was still standing, albeit barely. Brutal. Had you heard about this before? That no. she would make runs to no. Mexico and bring back guys' stuff? No. In 2015, she taped an adult film for Vivid Video. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, folks, we don't mean to laugh. It's well, she put it in the scene. <laughs> <laughs> up next is episode 19 and this is the last monday nitro from wcw but again you never know what we're going to talk about on these things and here bruce is going to share with us a hilarious story as to why buying wcw didn't really shock him because vince would buy anything well okay but let me let me rewind this too a little bit just so you understand where, where we come from when vince bought a casino in Vegas, I'm sitting at home and get a phone call. Hey, pal, we bought a casino. What the hell? No one knew. No one even knew Vince was in Vegas. And he went out and bought the damn Debbie Reynolds casino. So there were, you know, a lot of things, you know, at times that weren't discussed. It weren't, just happens. Weren't discussed and just happened. And you're sitting there going, did you know that? And everybody's going, did you know that? Did you know that? And he would go off on a whim at times. Obviously, in his mind, he knew what he wanted to do and, and had, had and a he vision. Did it. And, he, and he did it. 
and that's the way that Vince operates. So to hear early on, well, yeah, we'll we'll throw out a bit at WCW. That you hear those things all the time. When I heard we're going to buy the uh, restaurant there in Times Square. And we're going to have a WWF-themed restaurant. Goddamn, pal, it's going to be the WWF restaurant. It'll be bigger than Planet Hollywood, bigger than Hard Rock. And like, okay, great. Next thing you know, you're (laughs) doing a grand opening in Times Square, the most expensive property in Manhattan. And so you're shocked constantly, but then you learn how not to be shocked. So it was just kind of another day at the office. Okay, we're going to buy WCW. This is NXT champion and big fan of the show, Drew McIntyre. I've been asked to say a few words about an episode that I like, or perhaps a few words about Bruce himself. So I've been trying to rack my brain exactly what I can come up with. Uh, I got to America about 10 years ago. And my first week, within my first few days, they were actually having tryouts for the main roster at OVW, and they needed a body in the ring. I jumped in there, and Michael Hayes and Bruce were very instrumental in bringing me up to the TV very quick. Within my first three weeks, I think I was the fastest guy ever from developmental to TV, and they gave me a great opportunity. Story-wise, it was a different time back then. I seen some things. I grew up very quick, and to be honest, I can't really talk about most of it on the air. But, uh, you know, there were some good times <laughs> that made me the man I am today. Uh, what we're talking about is the love for Houston.com. Uh, helping out Houston and just helping your, your fellow man in any way you can is the most beautiful thing you can do. You know, right now we're reaching a handout and helping Houston. One day you might need someone to reach down and pull you up to. So let's all work together here and let's all make a difference. Take care, everybody. All right, episode 20 is actually one of the first times I heard that Shane Helms was a fan of the show. There is a phrase in here that became iconic in one of our biggest t-shirt sellers, and it was a total accident. I never imagined in a million years we would talk about it. And Silva, I bet you know exactly which clip I'm going to throw to here. No yob? No yob. Coming up. It comes out that Mil Mascaris will likely be a part of the match. Uh, Mil Mascaris um, was a tag team partner of Jose Lothario 25 years before. Now, it's one of the top draws in the business back then. Uh, but by this point, hasn't really been a draw in San Antonio for decades. But Mascaris is a name that even casual wrestling fans might recognize. Do you know whose idea it was to involve him? Would that have been uh, somebody the WWF requests? Or can you share anything with us about whose idea that was? Yeah, it was mine because Moscaris is arguably the second biggest name ever out of Mexico, second only to El Santo. And Moscaris was a huge name. He was a huge name in Mexico. He was a huge name in San Antonio. He was a huge name all over the world. He was the single biggest Mexican star ever to yeah. come out of Mexico. Uh, he was over and on he worked on top every place that he went For all decades. over the world of uh, Japan the United States Canada Europe every place he went he worked on top he was a mega mega star and when you look at when we would have Moscars for example in Houston you would see the generations of families that would come 
to see the legend that was Mil Mascaras and Santo before him. They, you, know, you would have the grandfather bringing the son, bringing his son. They would all come to the matches to talk about their experiences. And, and when they, you know, the, the grandfather would tell the grandson stories about the first time as a small child that he saw Mil Mascaras in the ring and, and what have you. So Mascaras was a huge name. He was a huge get, and he was an independent. He did not work just – he didn't work for AAA at all at the time. And he was one of those guys that could come in and, and work wherever he wanted to, whenever he wanted to. Um, does he get a five-figure payday for this? I don't know what he got. Can you talk to us about working with him? He didn't have a... – go ahead. No, yeah. No job. No job. Right, no you're, job. You're wagging your pointer finger back and forth, and you're, it sounds like you're saying no job. No job. Sometimes, uh, and and I say this with the utmost respect and love for Mil Mascaras, uh real name Aaron Rodriguez, and he would. Mill was a unique guy, a very old school guy. In that, when he would. Wrestle when he would come into the town, even in the dressing room, Mill kept his mask on. Mill wore his mask to the shower. He would take a shower. He would have a, a clean traveling mask that he would hang on the edge of the shower. He would take his shower, wash his hair, do all of his stuff, put the mask on in the shower, and then walk out and dry off and, and leave with the mask. And usually, wouldn't take his mask off. A lot of times he would wear his mask into the hotels because he was afraid someone might follow him and see him without his mask and get a picture of him without his mask. So he was very old school in that way. And a, it, obviously it worked for him because he, he was a huge driver where there was a mystique about Moscris. But I also remember how he used to, he used to come into the office in Houston without the mask and very, very movie star looks. Yeah. Really, really handsome guy. And he would walk in dressed, always dressed to the nines, custom suits, and again, looked like a damn movie star. And very, very polite, just a gentleman, class gentleman all the way. But Mill did not do jobs. And if you knew him, you could have conversations with him. He he spoke broken English, but he spoke English. He understood English, and he could speak it. But when it came time to ask Mill to do the favors for someone and put somebody else over, no, yeah, no, yeah, no, yeah. And <laughs> that was the only English you were going to get out of him. Episode 21 was a pretty emotional episode, and it's one of my very favorite ones. I really love the vignettes that the WWF would use to bring in a new character, and I felt like they hit a home run with Mr. Perfect. He was the subject of episode 21, but what has lived on from episode 21 is who beat Mr. Perfect. Mm. Here's a hint. He has a hashtag and nipple rings. Take a listen. Here's my question, I guess. To beat him. You know, you've got a guy who you've had in a main event position now for a couple of MSG shows. He's main evented a couple of Saturday night main events. Or not main evented two, but he, he main evented one and he had a hot angle with Hogan in another. He's in the Royal Rumble as the next to last man, the final guy eliminated by Hulk Hogan, down to the last two. 
and the decision is made. Okay. He's been here for a couple years now. We're going to beat him. Who should we get to beat him? I know Brutus, the fucking barber beefcake. I'm just curious how Brutus becomes the one to end the perfect record. It feels like this is a favor. Oh God, I couldn't answer that. I, I don't agree with it. You don't agree so, with what? I don't agree with Beefcake being the guy to end the perfect record it by makes, any stretch of the imagination. The, your your most recent pay per view, the Royal Rumble, he's on top with Hogan like the very last two, and now fast forward your next pay per view, he's losing to Brutus the fucking barber. Like that's his first loss. That should have been Hogan, should it not? I would think so. Yeah, I would. I would say either Hogan or Warrior, one of the two. Well, they got it right the next week. You know, you could argue whatever you want about the Ultimate Warrior. The Warrior after WrestleMania six was the champ, and so that's when their match aired and uh, Perfect lost to Warrior uh, in a match that was filmed at MSG. All right, episode twenty two was our first Q and A episode, and we called it hashtag Love to Know. And what's great about these shows is there's lots of topics that people are curious about. But we really can't talk about them for two or three hours, whether it's Nails or Tom McGee, or hypothetically, what might it sound like if this cast of characters that Bruce could impersonate ordered lunch? And Silva, this is your favorite clip of all time and the first piece of video work you did for us, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. When Bruce hit all those right off the cuff with the ridiculous things that we're ordering and just the characters and the over the top, I was... I was like, come on, take my money. I love it. I want more. Give me more cornet. Well, here it is. Here they are having lunch with Bruce Pritchard. Chris Hassan on Twitter wants to know, I can't think of a question. So I just want to hear Jim Cornette, Vince, Pat, Savage, and Jerry Jarrett order lunch. God damn, I want a double cheeseburger, extra cheese, double onion, extra mayonnaise, motherfucker. And Mr. McMahon, could I get your order as well? God damn, pal. Uh, turkey, onion, extra onion. God damn. Good call, Corny. Uh, Mustard on whole wheat. And Mr. Patterson? I don't give a fuck. If you got the Italian sub, put a lot of the oil and the vinegar on it. And uh, Mr. Savage? Uh-huh. What was that that you were having? Yeah, brother. Uh, dig it. Give me what he had. Uh-huh. Yeah. All right. And, uh-huh. and a cup of coffee. Yeah. Mr. Uh, Mr. Rhodes, I didn't see you arriving here at the table. As you pull up a chair here, what would you like for lunch, sir? Baby, they got any of that nice little pepperoni pizza with a little pig, extra pig snout on the side, baby. You know, make it, make it a little funky in there with, you know, with that extra cheese and shit in on there. You know, thank you, baby. I love you, darling. Uh-huh. Mr. Funky may have ridden here with Mr. Rhodes. What would you like? I'd like a couple of eggs over easy, you sorry bastard. Your mother's a whore. Uh, This is getting off the rails here, Mr. Piper, but what would you like? Well, you know, son, (laughs) there was that I saw down there the other day. I like like some pasta. Well, go ahead, just some marinara. You know, mix it all up in there. Good. Extra garlic. Uh, and, uh, last, but certainly not least, I don't know, Mr. Jarrett, do you have an idea what you'd like to have? 
Well, you know, it, it, you know, you take some, you know, the chicken, you know, and and you and you take some walnut, you know, and and you chop them uh, with the grapes, you know. And then, you know, and you, you mayonnaise and you, you mix, you, you know, and, and salt and the pepper and, you know, and, and, and you know, chicken salad, you know. You know, every now and again, as Bruce is telling a story, I start to get excited and I realize, oh, we've got a hit here. And episode 23 is the first time I really realized what we were on to. And when Bruce finished telling the story, I encouraged everyone to pause what they were doing and post on social media that something to wrestle is the greatest fucking wrestling podcast of all time. And somehow I spoke into existence because we won an award. And I thank a lot of that to this story. Episode 23, The Million Dollar Man. And this is when Bruce realized who the real million dollar man was. I want you to kind of recreate the way Vince would describe this gimmick. Well, hang on. Let me, let me, let me try and do this a different way. Vince and I at this time are making a lot of trips back and forth from New York to Houston, trying to shore up everything between the WWF and the Houston wrestling office. And Vince has pitched, you know, the million dollar man gimmick. We have started to produce the vignettes, what have you. And have I told, have I told the story about no, uh, the no. guy smoking in first class on the show yet? No, you have not. Okay. Then let me let me tell it to you that way. Yeah, that do it. Where the light bulb went off on me, and I truly got the million dollar man and the whole feeling behind it. So we this is back 1987. There was still smoking on planes. The first class section sometimes would only be the first row or be two rows. The first row would be non-smoking. The second row would be smoking. So go figure. And Vince is notoriously anti-smoking and hates cigarette smoke and doesn't like uh, cigarettes anywhere around him, what have you. And we're flying back from Houston back to New York. We are seated in seats 1A and 1B in first class. That is a non-smoking section. However, seats 2A and 2B directly behind us is smoking. And as we take off and they clear whatever altitude they clear, the non no smoking sign turns off in the cabin and in the sections where you're allowed to smoke, now you can light up. And we're flying along, and the guy sitting back in 2B takes his cigarette out, lights a cigarette. And he starts to smoke his cigarette, and Vince turns around and goes, Hey, pal, uh, I'll give you $100 put that cigarette out. And the guy says, No, nah, man, I'm, I'm good. You know, I... I want to have my cigarette. You know, I'm, I'm in the smoking section. I want to have my cigarette. Give you 200 bucks, pal. Put the cigarette out. The guy keeps smoking. Just says, look, I, I'm, I want to have my cigarette, okay? <laughs> you know, I'm flying. I paid for this. He goes, give me 500 bucks, pal. Put the cigarette out, all right? You know, um, the guy says, hey, man, I, I paid for my seat. 
I just want to smoke my cigarettes. I'll pay for your seat and I'll still give you another 500 bucks. Just put the cigarette out. And the guy finally just puts the cigarette out and Vince is peeling off hundreds to give this guy money for putting his cigarette out. And I just looked down and go, oh, fuck, man. You are the million dollar man. And that's when it, it, it all clicked on me because it was, you know, everybody's got a price, pal. Goddamn. Doesn't matter. Everything's for sale and everybody's got a price for the million dollar man. You understand now? And it clicked. But that was Vince in real life. I mean, that was real life shit that, I mean, actually fucking happened. I want everybody to pause the show right now and uh, post on social media that something to wrestle with is the greatest fucking wrestling podcast of all time. And it's because of stuff like that. Where else are you going to get that? Hit the subscribe button. Leave us a review. Yes, I'm plugging us right in the middle of a great story because you're not going to get that anywhere else. Thank you for sharing that, dude. That was awesome. So Bruce's impressions have got him a long way here on the podcast, but once upon a time, they got him in a little bit of hot water with Rick Rude. You don't want to miss this story about when Dusty Rhodes left a message for Rick Rude. It's from episode 24, all about ravishing Rick Rude. So at this point, there's someone in the car and and they make a suggestion say, "Well, well, goddamn, I got the WCW direct line list i got all their home phone numbers i got all their direct lines we just call their direct lines what if dusty called ted turner yeah mm-hmm. dig it so we got the list and started calling people in cnn tower and dusty started leaving messages teddy baby it's a dream Listen, I got some big ideas, baby. Gonna need a little more money. Uh, but when I get in tomorrow, you and I need to get together and, you know, hibernate and talk about some issues. And I might have called Jack Petrick and left all kinds of messages. And somewhere in this conversation and in this litany of phone calls, someone says, hey, let's call Rick. Well, me, I'm inebriated i'm extremely tired and exhausted and any other excuse that anybody can think of just go ahead and throw it on in there i'm like okay great but in my mind i'm thinking we're going to call rick flair because rick and i go back and i'm figuring hey you know rick uh rick will be a good sport i'll call answer his phone hello ricky baby hey baby it's the dream listen Listen, baby, I'm, I'm a little fucked up right now. I had a few beers, been out of the bar, been a little, my little red convertible Mercedes. I'm heading home. This Shelly and everybody, but I got an idea. I want to run by you. So how about you come on into the office in the morning, but I need you to get there early before anybody else. All right? I don't want anybody to see you. So come on in to the to the office early in the morning, baby, and, and, and I'll be in, and we'll talk about it, because I want to present it to you. I'm a little fucked up right now. I'm a little fucked up. Had a few bills. I want to present it to you in person, and, and, and see the look on your face when I tell you this idea. All right, Dream. 
I'll see you in the morning. All right, baby, listen, don't tell anybody about this. Don't talk about this at all. I'll just see you in the morning. We'll talk. I'll pitch you this idea. You're going to love it. By the way, you're going to love it, baby. It's going to be great. This is awesome. Oh, God, this is one of the best lightning bolt hit, man. Just a shoo out of the sky. And I said, oh, this is it. So I'll talk to you in the morning, baby. Get, get you some rest. All right. So this happens. And uh, don't think anybody, nobody talks about it. Nobody says anything about it. About a week later, I'm at TV. Lex Luger walks up to me and he says, man, you got coconut balls. I said, well, thank you, Lex. I'm glad you noticed. <laughs> he says, no, nah, man, you've got some fucking giant balls. So what are you talking about? And he says, well, ribbon Rick Rude. I, said, I didn't rib Rick Rude. Why the fuck would I rib Rick Rude? I don't have a death wish. And he says, well, uh, apparently you called him and you impersonated Dusty and asked Rude to go down to the office and, uh, meet him early in the morning and, and Rude went down there and no Dusty and Dusty didn't show up till like 1130 in the morning. Rude was fucking livid. They, they found out it was you calling and pranking everybody in, in Atlanta. About this time, Randy Savage is walking up. Well, hey, Randy, come here. And Luger's telling his story and Randy gets this look on his face like, oh, yeah, I meant to talk to you about that, brother. Uh, you remember last week, Poughkeepsie, and we were riding back and, you know, started making calls. And you might have made a few calls. Who the fuck did I call? Well, Barnett. I, I semi-remember Barnett. Ted Turner, a uh, bunch of people, WCW, Rick Rude. I said, whoa, whoa, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. I actually called Rick Rude? Yeah, brother, I meant to tell you about that because you were, you were a little gone and, uh, oh, shit. And so Luger's like, yeah, Rude's going to kill him. So Randy Savage and I go, Randy says, brother, don't worry about it. Oh, shit, did I say Randy Savage's name? I hate when that happens. And Randy and I go to the payphone, wherever the hell we are. And Randy calls Rick Root. And he's like, hey, brother, how you doing? Yeah, macho man. Uh huh. Yeah, well, uh, how's everything going? How's your boy? Uh, good, good, good. Uh huh. Yeah. All right, yeah. Hey, uh, how's everything else going, brother? And. I go, huh? I says, hey, tell me something. Uh, had any early morning meetings with the dream lately? And now Randy is holding the phone away from his ear, making faces like he's getting punched in the face. Then sticking his finger in his eyeball like somebody's gouging, gouging out his eyeball and pulling his face apart and going like, oh, God. Ow. Ooh. And he says, well, hey, brother, uh, listen, I was in the car and. And the rib wasn't exactly on you. It was really on Bruce Pritchard, and he didn't know who he was calling. He might have been led to believe he was calling somebody else. And Yeah, uh-huh, yeah. Well, no, no, brother, no. But there was never any intent, really, to rib you. And no one thought you would ever show up. 
And he's like, yeah, well, I did, and so on and so forth. He says, well, as a matter of fact, uh, I got him right here, and he'd like to talk to you. And Randy just hands me the phone. And I take the phone, I'm like, hey, Rick, how you doing? And he hit me with a litany of fuck yous, and I'm going to kill you, and all kinds of good stuff, and rip my eyeballs out. And I just tried to explain. I said, Rick, in a million years, um, I thought I was calling somebody else. I, you know, thought it was Flair, and knowing Flair being in Charlotte, Flair wouldn't be in uh, Atlanta to make a meeting, so that was ludicrous in and of itself. But I would never rib you, man. I'm sorry. And he's uh, rude. Goes on to tell me about how he paced all night. Got to the office at six o'clock in the morning. Had breakfast, and then Dusty doesn't show up till eleven o'clock. And when Dusty shows up, he walks in, and everybody's pissed off at Dusty, and everybody's talking about uh, Dusty leaving messages all night. Now I'm thinking this some bitch just got fucked up. And I want to kill Dusty. And I said, look, I'm sorry. What can I do to make it better? Fuck you. We'll go. And you kind of ended it with, you know, hey, what goes around comes around. I said, well, sorry you feel that way. Um, I hope one day, <laughs> you know, we can we can make this better. And, and he left the indication that it would never be better. And uh, then I fast forward to that. That fateful day before Atlantic City TV, when I called him and everything was cool. When we saw each other in Atlantic City, we hugged and and actually had a good laugh about it. But uh, it was a little insane. It was a little intense for a while because I I would check itineraries to make sure there was no one with the name Richard Rude on any of my flights or <laughs> anything like that going forward for a long time. All right, so episode 25 is all about the 1994 Royal Rumble and the month leading up to it. It's an interesting time in the company because business is down, so we get a different perspective than we might normally. Uh, a lot of people think the story here is all about the way they did the double elimination with Lex Luger and Bret Hart. Others really get a kick out of the idea that The Undertaker went to heaven. But to me, the real story, and I think you agree with this, Matt, is about something else. It's a miracle. Episode 25. Check it out. It's all about the Quebecers. Uh, let's talk about the Quebecers. I don't know when we we'll talk about these guys again. Uh, give us the backstory on the pairing and then of these guys individually because it feels like Pierre is not a guy that would have necessarily been the apple of Vince's eye. Pardon the pun. That's That was weak. No, I said pardon the pun. Well, Pierre was uh, from Montreal, as was Jacques Rougeau, and uh, those Quebecers and Canadians kind of stick together. But Pierre was somebody that was recommended by uh, Jacques, and Jacques had been a tag team for a long time with his brother Raymond. Um, he had done the... Rougeau brothers. The, well, he'd done the Rougeau brothers. The Mountie. He'd also done the Mountie. And this was a way to kind of continue the Mountie gimmick with a partner and be the Quebecers without having to use the Mountie, which we got a lot of heat for in Use the Mountie name in Canada. So by calling them the Quebecers, still wearing the red and the black uh, outfits similar to the Mounties, was a way to do that. So it was just two guys that had known each other for a long time. And um, had we already done Jean-Pierre Lafitte? 
Or was that after this? Uh, I think I, we had done the, the pirate first, yeah. which, which I kind of, because he only had one eye, so you could put a patch over and he could work. But Pierre Willette, Pierre Willette, he was a, uh, he was a hell of an athlete. And Who pitched just putting the eye patch on him? He's a, he's a pirate. Did you know pirates have eye patches? He's a pirate from Quebec. Yeah. Well, we said he was from France because that's where all pirates come. Their name's Jean-Pierre. Jean-Pierre Lafitte. Man. They got schools in Alabama. You're not saying this isn't a rib about him being... Never mind. Uh, golly, I really don't want to move on. He only had one time. eye, folks. He was legally blind. He was actually a miracle, the things he could do, so... Go ahead. What about Raven? No, what about... what? Of, well, you just said this guy can do... What about this guy's a miracle? He's got one eye, so he's a goddamn miracle? This is a t- well, no, he was he was, le- he was legally blind. He was, and he can still wrestle. I, I don't know what the hell. Yeah, he can still wrestle with one eye. It's like, try it sometime, okay? Stan Hansen's been doing it with no eyes for oh, 40 good, years. Good point. Okay. I retract my statement. He's a miracle. He's a miracle. <laughs> if I had only been practicing, I could have healed his ass. When we are healed. When we watched this show, the other day you made a comment about something he could do he could catch a ball <laughs> he could go try catching the goddamn baseball with one eye oh it tickled me to hear you try to sell that to me as being this big miraculous deal it was it's uh. a miracle Hey, this is WWE superstar Kurt Hawkins, and I just wanted to take this time to give a little shout-out to my good friend Bruce Pritchard and let him know and all the good people of Houston that I'm thinking about him, and he is in my thoughts and prayers right now. And if you can, please check out loveforhouston.com and donate. Every little bit helps, guys. Thanks for listening. All right, episode 60, the very best part of the Razor Ramon episode was the Hakushi story. Now, if you've been a long-time listener to the show, I know what you're thinking. There wasn't a fucking Hakushi story there. You're right, and it's Matt Coon's fault. Boo! Here we go. Here we go. Matt, you have to agree. The Hakushi story was the funniest thing on the show, right? Now that I've listened to it, I do have to admit that the Hakushi story was the funniest story on the show. However, I do not believe I deserve to have 500 people chanting F Matt Coon at the Gramercy. I disagree. I think the entire world needs to chant F. Matt Coon when they hear this Hakushi story that you should have heard on episode 60, Razor Ramon. Did anybody have a problem working with Hakushi? I hope we spend more time talking about him at some point in the future, but can you give us anything about Hakushi's run in the WWF? Hakushi, uh, the first time they ever heard the, the name Shin, Shinsuke. I guess I'm saying that right. Uh, is that how you say it? No. How the hell you say it? Well, it was I called him Shinsuke. Um, <laughs> it's, and, it's, it's Jinzei Shinzaki. Okay. Well, whatever. We call him Hakushi. But J.J. Dillon had been enamored with this whole Hakushi gimmick and the, the tattoos when J.J. had gone over for a Japanese tour. And we were 
it's, it's funny how certain guys stand out for certain things. And what we loved about Hakushi originally was how he walked the ropes like The Undertaker. Right. And J.J. just sang his praises from the mountaintop, which rightfully so. Hakushi was a great worker. Um, and in my opinion, a main event guy and super, super talent. But in our head, we're thinking with all the tattoos and this unique look, what a great opponent for The Undertaker. Right. So when we brought him in, we're all thinking that he's much bigger than he sure. actually was. Sure. And then he shows up and Vince sets eyes upon him and he's so small. Akushi wasn't really small, but he was small in comparison to the undertaker. Yeah. Most people are small in comparison. He's like five eleven, uh, like 230 something pounds. Right. So we automatically kind of shifted Hakushi to uh, Bret Hart and thought, well, you know what? He's a good worker and he can be a foreign menace to kind of go with Bret. But I don't know that Bret ever really saw Hakushi in his in his league. Um, but Hakushi was was another one. He, he was a great talent. We had him for I don't know. I think we did a year visa on him. So we knew that we kind of had him in and out at a certain time. We could only do so much and, and just kind of figured we'd get as much out of them as we could. I've got a few uh, of my old school wrestling friends and they think the Hakushi gimmick could have been so much more than it actually was. They're big fans of his. Well, if we had, if we had him and we knew that we had him for a longer period of time, you definitely could have invested a lot more in him, but we knew that he was coming in and, and leaving uh, due to visa issues. So we had a short-term visa on him. And, and it's funny. Some guys, man, they can come in no problem with uh, immigration. Others, it's, uh, it's a major issue. And for whatever reason, his was a major issue. What can you tell us about his manager, Shinja? Oh, <laughs> Sato, Mr. Sato. And uh, Sato, he's, he's the one that. They came up, and Undertaker does probably the best Sato imitation of, of anybody. But Sato, no matter what would happen, the guys used to like to rib Sato a lot. And Sato had this white makeup. It was kind of like clown makeup that he would put all over his face. It was very – how would Dusty describe it? It was very kabukiish, baby. Very, very, very kabukiish, baby. And the boys – used to take the makeup out and they would put in a pancake, a pancake mix, not like, you know, pancake powder, but they would put in pancake mix. And Sato would go through and he would go to put his makeup on. Oh, oh, I, oh, somebody put a, a pancake in, in my makeup. Oh, I'm going to tell JJ. Oh, oh, oh. And that was... That was the Undertaker imitation of Sato. I'm, I'm going to tell a JJ. <laughs> but Sato, Sato was a great worker back in the day, man. Oh, mark the time, kids. It took me like nearly two hours, but I finally got a good story out of Bruce. You've saved the show single-handedly. Maybe, maybe, maybe I call a JJ and I tell him they, they are even, they are even Sato again. <laughs> How long did that's it? A, that's a bear kabuki. Um, is it true that Hakushi translated means white master? 
Fuck him, I know, really? I don't know, I'm just wondering. Fuck you know, you made that up. Liar, liar, pants on fire. Oh, in your Google machine. I'm not going to. I thought it, I thought it was a... Seriously, you know what I thought Hakushi meant? What? I thought it, I, I thought it was a Kabuki warrior. Okay, turns out maybe that's just BS. Maybe it means white paper. Ooh, here's a white paper. <laughs> uh... <laughs> Who put the? Uh, do, I, do I need a fucking now? Do I need a Sato mask? I've, yes. Oh, maybe I tell you, JJ. I mean, we got to do a shirt for that. Let me ask you this: um, Yeah, like a pancake box or Mrs. Buttersworth with kabuki paint with Sato's face on. Yeah. What about the tattoos? Did he put those on himself? Or did he have somebody else put them shits on? Well, he had to have somebody else put them shits on his back, but he did all the rest of them. I mean, how do you do that? You got like a fucking. In my head, there's like a guy with like a paint roller. <laughs> oh, Japanese maybe, writing. Nobody knows what it is. You get the tattoo artist and he uh, choppy choppy on your on your back for it to be. Uh, can you translate? Uh, how would how would Dusty describe the tattoos? What did they mean? Ooh, there was that one that says I walk long road to get here only to do motherfucking jobs in this goddamn town. Back in my hometown, I'm big superstar. Very, very kabuki-ish. One day, I'm gonna, they're going to bury my happy ass in my homeland of Japan. Here's a great story about kabuki. I mean, not kabuki, uh, Hakushi. Hakushi was a big star back in Japan for the Michinoku Pro Group. And we go over, we... Taker and I go over for a Michinoku show where Hakushi is coming out and he's going to face the undertaker. So they made this big presentation about Hakushi being carried from the back and he's covered in dirt. Like they just dug him up from the grave and he comes to life for this match against the undertaker, the guy that buried him. Well, Hakushi very, very respectful and, and, and very respectful of the undertaker. We're in uh, the sumo hall in Tokyo, and they've got these huge old sumo dressing rooms, and Taker and I are in this huge, just fucking huge room just for us. And Hakushi makes his way over through the back hallways and and comes in and bows and shows his, pays his respects to the undertaker. And he starts, maybe I talk about match now with you. And he reaches into his pants and pulls out like 10 pages of notes written, all written in Japanese. And Taker just looks at him and, and he starts to go through all of his, all of his stuff. And Taker just kind of looks at him and says, uh, maybe we just call it out there. And poor Hakushi's face just, just went blank. But Taker took really good care of him. But it was... It was so funny. He pulls out all these. And I mean, man, front and back, all written in those Japanese characters. And he starts reading through it in his broken English, trying to, and he gets about the third page. And Taker's like, yeah, it's okay. We'll call it in the ring. A nice little note you got there. Yeah. Hey, what's up? It's Dan Soder. Um, obviously, Bruce is stranded in Texas. And for everyone else in Texas, I hope they're getting help. Make sure you go to loveforhouston.com and donate 
and help the victims of Hurricane Harvey. You can also text 90999 for the American Red Cross. Uh, let's get to, I don't remember who asked this one. What the heck was the warrior bleeding during the Papa Shango promo? I wasn't there, but it was purple ooze or green ooze. Okay. Just ooze special effects bullshit from Dr. Paint, who was the special effects guy at the time. That was his name. Dr. Paint. Here's what I like. I like that before you gave us that detail, you thought we would just like run on down to the Walmart and say, Hey, where's the purple ooze? Like that's a fucking thing. Thanks for saying Dr. Paint and qualifying it. Uh, Brad Stubbs. It's not a thing. <laughs> well, God damn, pal. Just give me some of that fucking ooze. <laughs> you know, green, purple ooze. God damn. You know, that voodoo ooze. <laughs> hey, everybody. This is Shane Hurricane Helms, and I got a Bruce Pritchard story for you. Now, this story, of course, takes place back in the day, and I'm going to guess it takes place on a Monday. Um, and I was, it was around the time when I was teaming with that big red meanie Kane, and Kane was involved in a feud with Triple H. And so we're going to do this skit, like at a hospital or something, where I'm going to have a Triple H mask on. So I don't actually know what had to be me, and you couldn't see my face, it could have been anybody, but they wanted it to be me, so it was me. And I would be laying face down, and this doctor would be pulling objects out of my ass. The last one was going to be Triple H's head. The joke being that Triple H had his own head of his own ass. Hey, it's not all, you know, sophistication, folks. Come on, you got to dumb it down sometimes. But anyway, on the ride over to the set location, whatever, gimmick, uh, in this limo is myself, a young spry Bruce Pritchard, and an equally young spry Vincent McMahon. And on this ride, Bruce is pitching the idea of this young stud that's on the roster that also can do this cool-ass freestyle rap game. Now, of course, we all know I'm talking about John Cena. Now, I don't know how big of a hip-hop fan uh, Bruce uh, is or was or whatever, but he's explaining them to him, and I just distinctly remember Vincent going, What do you mean he raps? <laughs> and, of course, Bruce is like, Yeah, just give him any subject, and he can just go. You know, it's, it's, it's crazy. You got to hear it. And I'm in the car, so of course I'm going to get my two cents. And, and by two cents, I might be overestimating the value of my opinion. <laughs> but I was like, yeah, Vince, I grew up on that stuff, and he's really good. You know, he's, he's really good at it. You know, the freestyle ain't easy. You know. And um, like I said, I'm not sure Vince was particularly sold on it. Uh, didn't seem to be at that particular point in time. But as history shows, he went with it. And John Cena grew on to be one of the uh, biggest stars the industry has ever seen. So if you love or hate John Cena, part of that blame has to go to Bruce Pritchard. <laughs> anyway, Bruce, I love you, man. Stay safe down in Houston. Uh, from the good hurricane, I hate to hear about all the uh, damage from one of these bad hurricanes. So everybody stay safe. 
Everybody stay safe. Let's raise some money for the city of Houston and get that city back up on its feet. Love you guys. And here's an Easter egg for you. A never before heard clip from the early days of something to wrestle with Bruce Pritchard. Once upon a time, Bruce and I taped a series of what we called pilot episodes just to get familiar with each other and sort of nail down our chemistry and our format. One of those shows was around the 1993 Survivor Series. Jerry Lawler was embroiled in a huge feud with Bret Hart and the entire Hart family. But who were supposed to be Jerry Lawler's knights? There's been lots of rumor and innuendo about what really happened. And here Bruce shares an incredible story about what happened to the night before Survivor Series 1993 on a very special never-before-heard clip from Something to Wrestle with Bruce Pritchard. And we had the match, and the match What was the plan? All right, you were saying there were okay. supposed to be guys. It was Greg the Hammer Valentine. Who else? Well, it, it was th- this is the big one, and th- this is kind of what, what people don't, don't know. Um, we actually played around with having one of the Hart brothers be one of the knights. And, but would people at home have and, known that? Or I mean, the commentators would have had to sell that, right? Oh, without a doubt. And, and I mean, Neidhart was, was bannered about being oh, yeah. one of the knights. That would have been huge. You know, things like that. The guys that, when you look at, Greg Valentine's kind of hard to disguise. Yeah. Put him in a mask. You have blonde hair sticking out the back of it. He stands like he stands and walks like he walks and hits elbows like he hits elbows. You go, that's Greg Valentine. Yeah. Um, Neidhart, you look at him with the gut, with the everything. You go, that's Neidhart. And then the the coup de grace, the guy that we had some fun stuff planned with, was supposed to be the Funker, Terry Funk. Wow. And we brought everybody in because the brothers hadn't worked, with the exception of Brett Nolan. They hadn't worked in a while. And you had Keith and Bruce, and we just wanted to know what we had. So brought them all into Stanford ahead of time. The Survivor Series, I believe, was in Boston. But we brought them all in the night before, Saturday night, to kind of run through the match in the, in the warehouse. Well, while all this is going on, I wasn't there. But somehow, someone, I'm not going to mention Brett's name, but as the story goes, um, we had an idea to take the masks off the guys to reveal who they are. Sure. And the first one was going to be Terry Funk. And it was it was a deal with Brett putting him in the sharpshooter and and all these things. And as the the match was laid out, so on and so forth, and, and this took place at the bar after the fact. So everybody's staying at the Sheraton in Stanford, and, and apparently Brett and Terry get off in a corner. Brett says, well, they've got this idea. They want to unmask you and, and then talk about, you know, hey, that's Terry Funk and all these things. Well, apparently that, I don't know that anybody knew it then, But it didn't really go over that well with Terry Funk. So while I'm uh, getting up the next day. What didn't he like about it? Do you know? I think he just, I think he liked the idea of doing the match under the mask. 
and people guessing that it's Terry Funk, but not unmasking him and say, oh, that's Terry Funk, and he just tapped out to the sharpshooter. I don't really know to this day. Okay. So next day I'm getting up to make the drive up to Boston, come downstairs after taking a shower and so on and so forth, and I notice there's a message on my um, phone answering machine. We had phone answering machines back in that day. Sure. So the red Um, light's blinking. The red light's blinking. And it's a message from Terry Funk. Can I guess what it said? You can. My horse was sick. Exactly. Pritchard, I love you, but I've got to go home. My horse is sick. <laughs> I'm like, what the hell? So then along the lines, either Brett called Pat or Pat called me. Somehow we all get it. And Terry had folded up his nice little knight's outfit <laughs> and he'd left it outside of uh, Brett's door with the same note. Gotta go. My horse is sick. Wow. And so the Terry Funk is one of the nights at Survivor Series never happened. So that and was, that was sad for me because I love Terry Funk. The night before the show? The night before the show. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we're winding up this very special edition of Something to Wrestle Without Bruce Pritchard. We hope you've enjoyed what we would consider a best of. And most of all, we hope you went to loveforhouston.com. Donate all you can. Every little bit helps. And, of course, 100% of your donation is tax-deductible and goes directly to the Red Cross as we are trying to rally the troops together for this Hurricane Harvey relief. We can't say enough nice things about the state of Texas, the city of Houston, and Bruce specifically, but you guys have made this show possible. We appreciate your continued support. If you haven't already, go ahead and make a donation. Loveforhouston.com, and be sure to check out our exclusive new T-shirt over at BrucePritchard.com. It's in the shape of Texas. There's a little heart right over Houston. And again, 100% of those proceeds go to the cause as well. Thanks as well to everybody who pitched in on this show. We had lots of love from the wrestling community. All the big names, a who's who of wrestling, if you will, managed to come together. This is almost like wrestling's version of We Are the World. And uh, our world of the Pritchard Show wouldn't be complete without the great influence of Mr. Matt Coon, who makes us sound good every week. And, of course, Dave Silva, who makes us look good. Dave, I really appreciate you coming on, and, and I hope that your herpes or your whooping cough or whatever has got you under the weather today uh, doesn't keep you down for long. I appreciate that, Conrad. But first off, I just want to say, being a proud Texan, I couldn't be prouder with the way that we all have come together and help one another during this terrible time. Um, my heart goes out to all those that have lost loved ones and that are struggling through the floods right now. You know what? We can come together. We can make a difference. We can make a change. Loveforhouston.com. Any change you have, any dollars in your pocket makes a huge difference for all those folks over there. And I know Bruce is, Bruce is doing what he can um, over there even tonight as we do this podcast, he's making a difference. So I just want to just want to thank you for having me on today and and for letting me be a part of this best of. Well, we're glad you're a part of the show every single week. And if you get a chance to come to a live show, you'll get a chance to meet with us to all these shows. And, and we really appreciate all of his contributions. And you said something great there about us all coming together. And I want to mention, you know, as JR said earlier in the show, 
thoughts and prayers are nice, but these folks need just practical items. They need cleaning supplies. You know, they need bathroom supplies. They need clothes. They need water. They need food. They need shelter. Every dollar counts. Together, we can make a big, big difference. So please give all you can over at loveforhouston.com. And Matt, your contribution would not be complete here. You make us sound good. You've got the hilarious music beds. You've got the funny music intro that everybody loves so much. We really appreciate you taking time out of your day to join us on this best of and be really one of our very first official guests on a show based around not having guests. So thanks for joining us today, Matt. Well, thank you very much for having me, Conrad. It's been a pleasure to work on the show and to be on the show today. Please donate to the link that we provided. It goes right to the Red Cross. It's a great organization. They're doing great work in helping Houston and the rest of Texas recover. Give all you can, man. Loveforhouston.com. We appreciate your support. If you've got a few extra bucks, check out a T-shirt over at BrucePritchard.com. And get the Texas one, man. That's what we want you to buy. 100% of the proceeds go directly to the Red Cross. We'll be back next week. Hopefully, Bruce will be back with us. And we'll be talking about the Macho Man Randy Savage. That's what won the poll. So you've got that to look forward to. And hopefully, we've got a whole new world in front of us when some of these floods subside and the rebuilding process can begin. But we need your help, and it starts right here at home at loveforhouston.com. We'll see you next week right here on Something to Wrestle with Bruce Pritchard. You good? I'm good. All right. Sound man. Three, two, one. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? You pay me more. Jeff Smith teaches on the sliding scale. (laughs) Those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.